I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. You accept? Yeah, I accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by four history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And John Killeen from London, England. And in this episode we'll be talking about New Caledonia. New Caledonia is a French unique collectivity in the southwestern Pacific Ocean, around 900 miles or 1500 kilometers east of Australia. It includes the island of New Caledonia, where the capital Noumea is located, the Loyalty Islands, the Belep Islands, and the Isle of Pines, as well as a number of far flung uninhabited islets. The main island is by far the largest and contains about nine tenths of the population. It's surrounded by a coral reef, which encloses a large number of lagoons. These lagoons, with their diverse reefs and associated ecosystems, were designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2008. Cited and named by Captain James Cook in 1774, New Caledonia was later colonized by the French and eventually turned into a penal colony. Of course. New Caledonia has a land area of around 18,000 square kilometers or 7,000 square miles, making it just slightly smaller than Israel or the US state of New Jersey. Its population of around 270,000 consists mostly of a mix of Kanak people, who are the original inhabitants of New Caledonia, other Melanesians, and people of European descent. Now, we have a special guest on this episode. John, you have recently visited New Caledonia, which is why you're, you're joining us for this episode today. Do you want to give us a, a very brief overview of your impressions on the, on the island when you were there? I have indeed. I visited New Caledonia last October on a cruise ship of all things. <laughs> The most, <laughs> the most touristy way <laughs> of getting a very brief overview of a place. How long were you there for? So I was there for three days in total. So one day on each island. Oh. The islands that I visited were the main island and then Mare, which is smaller, and Isle of Pines mm. as well. So sort of felt like we got a good overview of the three, you know, the three main islands. You actually speak French, right? So. I do, yeah. And that was actually one of the things that I was most excited about was getting to go to this place and, you know, speak French thousands and thousands of miles away from mainland mm. France. And I mean, it was unbelievable how you get there and speak to local people, whether they're from the French tradition or from the Kanak tradition. And they all sound like they've come straight out of Paris. I wow. just, I absolutely couldn't believe it. You know, the accents are just like you'd find in any French city, really. Okay. I think the first thing that really strikes you when you when you get there, when you arrive in New Caledonia, is that it is a really, really beautiful place. I mean, it's no wonder that the tourism economy is is growing so much at the moment, and it really is, because, you know, you've got the natural landscape, which is absolutely beautiful, really diverse. Luke mentioned the reefs. Mm. Um, but like I said earlier, I was a tourist, and I was very aware of the fact that my experience was going to be as a tourist, and it was going to be a sort of curated fairly artificial experience in some ways like I must say that in some ways it was quite uncomfortable to be there as a tourist mm. I mean the worst moment I think was when we arrived 
on the ship and we docked in Numea and we got off the boat only to be greeted by the ship's photographer and two local residents who were dressed in what would be described as tribal clothing yeah. and mm. dancing and then hugging us while the photographer shouted, Huggy, huggy, big smile. <laughs> oh, no. Wow. Oh, Monetize your heritage. Monetize it, damn it. It was a horrible feeling. It felt like being one of these people who's just coming to, you know, gawk and contribute yeah. to the decimation of local culture through tourism and then leave, you know, happy and go back to the buffet on the ship. <laughs> I had a meaningful experience. Yeah. So there, there was that kind of discomfort. Yeah. Yeah, so I found Numea really, really interesting in terms of just how French it is. I mentioned the accents earlier, but it's not just the accents, it's the look of the place as well. I think anyone who's been to France knows that French bureaucracy has a really, really distinctive look. And anything that is state-run in France is instantly recognisable because they put a lot of importance on um, symbols and iconography. <laughs> that sounds much more kind of religious than I mean, but just in terms of the symbols that they use. Um, so from post offices to schools, things like that, you'll always notice that something is French state run because it has a symbol. Um, and I was really shocked with how when you're walking down the main streets in Numea, you could really easily be convinced that you are actually in a French town because you have French post boxes, you have French street signs, you have a hôtel de ville, which is what every French town has. It's sort of the the town hall. Not only that, you had French fast food chains, mm. French-style public places. It's actually got the nickname of the Paris of the Pacific. Mm, I did hear that, yeah. <laughs> huh. And I, I think in that way, it's quite reminiscent of this idea of uh, the pale in Ireland being the part of the country where, you know, the colonization was the most, you know, in scare quotes, successful. And because of that, the area began to take on the look of the colonial power yeah. a lot more than the rest of the country. And then following on from that, when you leave Noumea, it's similar to that this idea of going beyond the pale. So once I got out of Noumea, the French influence was much, much more mixed, um, much more heavily with an older native cultural tradition. I assume the Kanak influence was a lot more heavily felt outside the cities. Is that, is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You, you saw different areas of New Caledonia. Um, did, did you see, you know, or were you allowed to see any uh, evidence of, of poverty or, uh, you know, any, any of the, the less swish sides of, of New Caledonia? I think economically they're doing quite well, broadly speaking, but... Um, it's quite divided. Yeah, what, what, was your, what was your experience visually? There was a little bit of that because while we were on the Isle of Pines, we took a bus trip mm. and that was to some sort of a few main sites on the island. So obviously those are the touristy sites. But what you see when you're going through the island to get to and from mm -hmm. them is obviously the bits in between. And there was evidence of, you know, poverty and just from what you could see from the bus windows. But it was hard to tell whether whether that was poverty or whether that was just sort of simple living from people who were, um, you know, not from the main island. These are people who've had, you know, historically less influenced by the French. And so you don't have French architecture. Yeah. You don't have French uh, road systems. But you do have cultures and communities of people living, you know, with their buildings that are made in sort of more traditional Melanesian style. So like huts or, or, or oh, yeah. buildings in a Melanesian style? Absolutely huts. Um, okay. Yeah, huts, rounded huts with um, conical roofs made of straw. And in that climate, that's a perfectly suitable 
structure to live in. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's the thing. That's this is what I was saying. That on the surface you might think, oh, is this an example of, you know, of poverty? But then you think that actually it might just be a case that these people are living in the way that they've mm. lived for hundreds yeah. of years, which is very successful. They're living in successful yeah. communities, and um, that you know that may not actually be poverty at all. While you're saying your experience was curated, like it, it's not North Korea, you know, it is it is France. Um, <laughs> and yes. or is it Joe? Yeah. Question mark. Mm. Cur- cur- currently, as we record, it is. It's a part of France in a complicated way. Yes, um, but yes. that may change in the in the not too yeah, distant we'll, future. We'll, as we'll get to that. As we'll as we'll talk about, yeah. So, John, you're gonna you're gonna help out and chime in uh, every once in a while throughout this episode. If if anything, you know, if you have anything to relevant to add from your visit or you know from the reading that you've been doing for this for this episode, but yeah, we'll start out in our uh, traditional way that we've been trying to do this season by talking a little bit about something that we're looking forward to uh, from this episode. So, Joe, do you want to do you want to give us something that you're looking forward to talking about this episode? Sure purely selfishly so like as as i may have never mentioned before professionally i'm a chemist ah. so i you know i'm the european union is paying me at the moment to research transition metal chemistry and uh i'm gonna get to talk a little bit about the origin of some some cool chemical names during this episode which is is nice to bring some of my you know joe's foisting knowledge on us all mm. yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna force <laughs> you to learn a few a bit, a bit of chemistry history and uh, that that's fun because i don't get right. to do that much in our uh, in our history podcast all right mark what about you um there is uh, uh i i have some of the less fun times uh but there is one uh prolonged very nice quote that i'm very much looking forward to which has repeated uses of the word mad uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to a, a murd-heavy quote uh, that, that is on the horizon. All right. And John, you have anything you want to uh, foreshadow that you're, you're looking forward to talking about this episode? Yeah, I got a little bit of local mythology, um, local history while I was there. And that's sort of something that I've seen the location of in the flesh. So I'd kind of like to, uh, to tell that okay. story. That sounds awesome. Nice. This is why it's great to have someone who's been there. Yeah. And I will be... Speaking a little bit later about the the one of the symbols of New Caledonia, which is the kagu, the the mm. bird, uh, which sure. appears on a lot of the kind of national you know uh, crest, I, I believe, and and things like that. It's it's like very much a symbol of of New Caledonia today, but it's it's a it's a it's a pretty weird bird. So <laughs> some weird ass bird. chemistry, chemistry, mythology, birds, and and and, and mares. Oh, your your quote mark as well. That's what we're, that's what we're looking forward to. Yeah. And just before we dive in, you talk about one of the symbols, and 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 we were talking about the huts a minute ago. W- one of the symbols on the flag is also this thing called the uh, the flesh fatier. Oh yeah, we should mention that. Which yeah. um, you'll see it on the kind of Kanak Liberation Party's the Kanak and Socialist National Liberation Front. FLNKS. Yeah, yeah. But, but on on the party representing the, the the indigenous Kanak people, they have this this symbol, and it I couldn't figure out what it was. I had to go and look it up. It's some kind of Spear, like a, um, a symbolic, what would you call it? Is is this the thing that looks like a kebab? It does look like yeah, a kebab. That's it looks like a kebab. Terrible. <laughs> it's ch- chicken and onions. That's what it looks like. Somewhere between a, a kebab and a totem pole. But it's basically a, a decorative spear that would be on top of the chief's hut. And it's got like a carved face of a of an ancestor and a conch shell impaled on it. And uh, 
spikes to keep away evil spirits. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a protective thing for the house. It's meant to yeah, and it also kind of tells some of the history of the of the chief and his family, and it's very connected to ownership of land. So that's what that symbol is. If you if you look at the flag, um, yeah, uh, the the flag has a yellow solar disc with a hot ridge pole set against three bands of color: green for the vegetation, red for the blood of the people, and blue for the sea and the sky which apparently signifies New Caledonia's desire for uh, freedom and independence. Or at least so uh, uh, or at least the Kanak indigenous population's desire for independence. Yeah. And they fly this alongside the French tricolour in a confusing kind of two-flag flagpole setup that we'll talk about later. Yeah. If you want to check it out, it will be in the show notes for this episode, which are available in your podcatcher app. It is a fine-looking flag. Yeah. So, John, I believe you recorded some sounds for us while you were in New Caledonia. Is that right? I did. Yeah, I spoke to a couple of people, uh, one of whom was really, really interesting and he was really willing to speak to me. Um, he was a tour guide, a Kanak man, and I think his name was Ticori Jonathan. Yeah, so we're going to insert a couple of clips here from uh, John's interview, which he very kindly conducted for us. Um, first is about the uh, various languages of New Caledonia and the second I believe is about the impact of tourism on the island. Is there a language particular to the island? We speak Nakwenyi, which is one of the languages of New Caledonia. There are 22 different languages spoken in New Caledonia and French is used as a lingua franca. The 22 languages are all completely different from each other. Really? Yes. So if you go to the town hall, for example, would you have to use French? Yes, exactly. I have to use French. So everyone in New Caledonia is bilingual? Exactly. Everyone speaks French and their mother tongue. I work as a guide on the Isle of Pines, so I also speak English. What language is used in schools? French. French is spoken in schools. Right. French is spoken in schools. All schools are French medium. French is the dominant language. And at home? At home, people speak their mother tongue and French. Both? Yes, both. Do the languages get mixed a lot? Yes, the languages are mixed a lot nowadays. Young people mix the languages a lot. Finally, is tourism very important to the island? For the Isle of Pines, yes. Tourism is the main economic activity here on the Isle of Pines. Do you think tourism is something positive or negative for life here? For local people, the culture, etc.? There are positives and negatives. It's important to find the right balance between development and preserving the area. Language is a constant kind of presence on the island in terms of multilingualism. So there's a lot of linguistic blending going on. Um, the dock in Mare, which is the second island that we went to see, has this lovely colourful sign saying, Welcome to Mare in French, uh, English, of course, because of tourism and also the local language of the island. It's hard really to get a sense of quite how many languages there are. Different sources seem to give different numbers. I've yeah. read anything from 18 to mm -hmm. 33. Yeah, there are a lot of different Kanak dialects, but even now like, they haven't really consolidated necessarily. And obviously there's a lot of different ethnic groups also that live on the islands aside from just French and, and indigenous people. So yeah, a lot of, Absolutely, a lot of different yeah. languages all over the place. And then just a few meters along from where we saw that sign, 
we saw probably the thing that was most striking for me of the whole trip to New Caledonia, because, um, you know, from a personal level, I love music and I also love languages. So what we saw was this local school group who'd come out um, to sing and to raise money for their school. And the song that we that they were singing while we came out was in their local language rather than in French. It was just a really, really beautiful song. I really want to include it in the show at some point because it's quite striking when you listen to it. It's catchy, it's beautiful, um, it's well worth a listen. Okay, so how about we uh, take a quick break? Great. So uh, we'll yeah we'll insert the 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 song that John is is referencing just now, and then uh, after that we'll come back and we'll we'll do some early history. earliest recorded inhabitants of New Caledonia were present on the island between 1600 BCE and 500 BCE. And these were people known as Lapita people. Uh, they had presences all over the South Pacific. They were excellent navigators. And for anyone who's listened to our Easter Island episode, these were sort of the, the forerunners of the, the sort of great Pacific navigators that we spoke about in that, that episode. And more generally were, were kind of the the ancestors of the of modern Polynesian people and Melanesian people today. Lapita settlements can be found all over the South Pacific region uh, in many different South Pacific islands. Some of them are spread more than 4,000 kilometers apart from Melanesia to Fiji and Tonga and even in Samoa. But uh, the name Lapita, which is the name of these people, comes from New Caledonia, apparently. And this is a... So th this is a name given to them. Is it? Yes, so this is the name that's given to them by by modern historians, by, as, as uh, far as I, or yeah, archaeologists when they were researching these uh, Lapita people, misheard a word in a local dialect, which means to dig a hole or the place where one digs, uh, so probably something like Lapita, yeah, and uh, this, this was during the fifties, uh, in uh, they were doing like some kind of excavation in New Caledonia. So an excavation, say, what is this? And the guy's going, "You're digging a hole." <laughs> You're digging a hole, yes. And they heard Lapita, <laughs> ah, and they were like, the "Oh, these are the Lapita people." Okay, great. And it stuck. Um, so that's yeah, that's wow. that's where the name Jeez, apparently man. that's where the name comes from. So it, it's good yeah, to know that even so. in the fifties we were pretty ignorant. Yes. Uh, especially in the 50s, I would say. I think some researchers apparently have claimed that there's evidence even further back, uh, dating from 3000 BCE, but where they, you know, some people have, have said that they, they've carbon dated or whatever, they found pottery and ev evidence of, of uh, habitation all the way back that far. So it, it's, it's possible that there's people been here for several, you know, thousand years mm -hmm. at this point. But um, from what I could find on it, it's it's not well established yeah. as of as of now. So um, the earliest history that we really know about is uh, from our, you know, we, we we're gonna have our klaxon now of the British are coming. Uh, yeah. So in the in the you know the mid 1700s, so uh, around this time, you know, age of exploration, much of the Pacific was completely unexplored, uh, unknown by white people. Sorry, by, by, white, by people, white people, of course. Yes, by white people. Except for the, all the people that live there. For thousands of years. Yes. Having very clearly explored. <laughs> it. 
But yeah, in the in the, in the views of the British, it was uh, completely un- unknown. The maps were essentially blank in this area. So we spoke about Abel Tasman, who had made his way around Australia, and you know, obviously Tasmania, which we talked about earlier in the season, was named after him. He was one of the only explorers who had who had done any kind of work in this area. And there was also this theory around this time, which we which we also spoke about in the Tasmania episode of the Terra Incognita Australis. Ah, Do you yes. guys remember what that was? Absolutely. It's the assumed balancing act of, you know, well, there's a Europe, so there has to be a southern opposite side Europe. And exactly. I, I guess it must exactly. be this. Or the world will fall over. <laughs> exactly. That was that was a thought. I mean, that, this is the extent of, of scientific uh, reasoning at this time. So the British wanted to explore this area and map it out and, you know, kind of claim certain territories for Britain and, you know, uh, be able to say that they've discovered this incognita Australis southern continent. So one very good excuse for this was uh, in 1769 when the British Royal Society determined that a transit of Venus was to take place. They were obviously mapping the stars and the planets at this time, but they, they you know, the southern half of the of the Earth was still pretty much unexplored. And this transit of Venus would give astronomers of the day the ideal opportunity to measure the distance of the Earth from the Sun, hmm. which hadn't accurately been determined yet. Hmm. Uh, there's actually an 80 days connection here as well, where we talked about in the St. Helena episode, mm-hmm. where in 1676, uh, Edmund Haley, who after whom Haley's Comet is named, this is the reason why he went to St. Helena as well, was to, was to take ast- ast- yeah. astronomical measurements. So from, from the Southern this Hemisphere. is kind of... Yeah, so this is one of the reasons why um, exploration was also being pushed at this time. And the original commander of this expedition to the Southern Hemisphere was to be Alexander Dalrymple. Does that does that name sound familiar to you guys? It absolutely That's does. A port in northern Tasmania, right? It is, exactly. Uh, he was a naval hydrographer Great name. who had proposed Aren't, that there was again all? he was a, he was <laughs> a, yeah he was a proponent of this of this uh, Terra Incognita Australis and he uh, wanted to to lead this expedition and i'm going to quote now from uh the preface there was a preface written in the la in the logs of captain cook who will go on to discover new caledonia uh, so i'm gonna i'm gonna read a quick quote here the central pacific afforded a favorable posi- position and the royal society memorialized the king to send a ship for the purpose the request was granted and at first alexander dalrymple who had conducted marine surveys in the East Indies and was known as a scientific geographer, was selected as observer. As, however, it was it was found that he also expected to command the ship, the Admiralty positively refused to have anything to do with him, and after some discussion, James Cook was selected. Nice. So I'm not exactly sure why, but uh, that's a, a serious burn on, on, on uh, Dalrymple there. Apparently mm. he was... They were like, yeah, you can do the science stuff, but uh, you're, you're not leading the expedition, no way. And quite rightly... I mean, like that, that smacks of the kind of, well, I'm a gentleman. I shall be great at this. I'll lead your yes. army. I'm a gentleman. No, you dumbass. Mm-hmm. Get a general to do that. I'll do the surgery. I'm Cook a Cook is becoming a bit of a bit of an 80 days superstar this season, isn't he? It, he is. He is. I think yeah. we, we, we've touched on a few, a few islands around this region, I suppose, but. He turned up in Easter Island as well, uh, right? right? He was close by. He yeah. did turn up in Easter Island, I believe. And interestingly, now that you mention that, uh, where he kind of cut his teeth, as it were, uh, as a as an explorer and as a as a you know sort of a British Navy man, he had made extensive maps of Newfoundland before hmm. this, and this was one of the one of the things on his CV that he was selected for. Was you know he he did some great work over there and uh, produced some you know some great maps and and charts of of Newfoundland. So 
uh, yeah, that, that's one of the reasons why he was he was selected to lead this specific uh, expedition. So over his lifetime, he would end up making three different voyages around different areas of the Pacific. And, you know, there's an interesting couple of maps on uh, Google Images that you can take a look and see kind of the the routes that he took all over the Pacific. But on his second voyage in 1774, he lands at Belade on the east coast of the mainland of New Caledonia. I'm going to quote here from a book called The History of uh, the History of Maritime and Inland Discovery by W.D. Cooley from 1831. This is one of the only accounts that I could find. He didn't Cook didn't seem to spend very much time here, so this is one of the only accounts that I could find mm. that actually sort of speaks a little bit to his time in New Caledonia. So Cooley says he sailed from the New Hebrides on the 1st of September and on the 4th discovered land near which the resolution which was the name of the ship came to anchor the next day the inhabitants were a strong active and handsome race bearing some resemblances to the people of tana and those of the friendly isles the same mixed character was observed in their language they had never seen europeans before but were friendly and obliging in their behavior big mistake and what is still more remarkable (laughs) in and what is still more remarkable in the south seas strictly honest in all their dealings (laughs) what a backhanded compliment yeah and unlike the other natives, they weren't treacherous morons. <laughs> <laughs> treacherous morons. Like uh, we've uncovered something in Joe here, guys. Yeah. This is a, ooh, dark portent. No, I said it in a British accent. It's fine. <laughs> um, to this island, Captain Cook gave the name of New Caledonia, and though compelled by necessity to leave it before it was fully surveyed, he had nevertheless examined it sufficiently to prove that, excepting New Zealand, it is perhaps the largest island in the South Pacific Ocean. Mm. And I think I think that's somewhat debatable, but um, yeah, that's that's from 1831. Well, uh, excepting Australia, yes, anyway. and Tasmania. Um, ah. It's amazing to think that he, you know, was just going around, landing somewhere, didn't even have time to kind of have a look around, and was like, "This is your name. This is your island's name." Yep. I mean, with the Isle of Pines, he just uh, sailed past it. He didn't even land on it, but he was like, "I think we'll call that one the Isle of Pines." And are there pines yeah. there? <laughs> oh, there are lots and lots of pines right. there. I mean, it was, it. it was a logical name. He kind of nailed it. But I just, I just love how he looks at a tropical paradise island with coral reefs and and uh, and so on. And kind of goes, this reminds me of Scotland. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a naming story anyway. Because his father was from Scotland. So uh, apparently the, the mountains of the main island reminded him of, of Scotland. So yeah. that's why he decided All to right. name it New Caledonia. Which, you it's know, a, it's uh, as good a way in as case any... anyone's unfamiliar, Caledonia is a old name for scotland so cook definitively proved essentially over the course of his his three voyages around the pacific that terra australis incognita was a myth then in 1793 a few years later french navigator antoine de bruni uh became the second european to land at Calado- uh, new caledonia and he was actually in the middle of a, a search and rescue mission for another french naval officer jean francois de galoup uh, who had in this area his, his ship had disappeared and all of his men uh, parts of the ship would later be found not too far from new caledonia which kind of confirms so that yeah. uh yeah that uh, um, they didn't they didn't survive but there was one person from that expedition who did survive uh he he disembarked before the sinking uh and you know <laughs> if you can guess this guy is a, is a relative of somebody that we've talked about before um <laughs> Which I found really interesting. Let's see if you can if you can guess. His name is Bartholomew de Lesseps. <gasps> yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> I was hoping. Yes, there you go. But this is the nephew of the guy who built the Suez Canal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So de Lesseps, one of the one of the heroes of uh, of eighty days lore. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I just found out a, a crazy connection. So De Bruyne uh, obviously didn't find this guy that he's looking for, but he, he and his crew extensively mapped Van Diemen's Land, which would later go on to be known as Tasmania, and was also maybe partially responsible for the British stepping up their efforts to colonize that island. Uh. Yeah, after that, there was there was very little European interest in New Caledonia up until about 1840, which is, I believe, uh, you, you're going to talk a little bit about, Mark. Yeah, so there, there was interest uh, from missionaries. Mm. They wanted to, you know... Uh, Mm, bring bring the good word. I think that's the, the kindest way of putting it. Civilizing the savages might be a, a less kind way mm-hmm. to put it, given, given the views of the time. But we have the British Protestant mission of the London Missionary Society, uh, which is a very long name. They began to evangelize Polynesia at the end of the 18th century. They didn't get off to a great start. They were able to afford a very small ship called the Duff, which was 267 tons. It carried 18 crew and 30 missionaries. Seven months after the crew left Woolwich docks in in late 1796, they arrived in Tahiti, where 17 missionaries departed. The missionaries were instructed to become friendly with the natives, build a mission house for sleeping and worship, and learn the native language, all the stuff you might expect. They faced unforeseen problems. Were were they killed and eaten? Well, the natives had firearms, Ah, and were anxious to gain the possessions (laughs) from the crew, (laughs) which is a delightful turn. (laughs) Uh, the Tahitians had also faced difficulties with diseases spread from previous crews, and the natives saw this all as retribution from the gods and were very suspicious of the crew. Uh, the missionaries soon left, and they were back on the first British ship to Tah- uh, from Tahiti to London. Sounds uh, like a wise move. Oh, yeah. So the, the Duff made a second trip. They were immediately sent back to Tahiti with 30 more missionaries. The journey was disastrous. A French privateer captured mm-hmm. the Duff, Landed its prisoners in Montevideo in Uruguay and sold it. What? Yeah, just took it's, the boat and sold it. It's not on the way. Um, and yeah, basically it cost the, the society £10,000 and they almost went bankrupt. However, they did survive these, these ignoble beginnings and uh, did eventually land in New Caledonia around uh, 1841 in Mare and Lifu in 1842. They managed to settle themselves in there, and they were then followed by seven Catholic missionaries who were kind of attempting to prevent the, the dominance of, of Protestantism in well, of the islands. The, the Catholics arrived in Balad at 1843. The missions dug into the local culture, uh, providing things like education, health, which is a common model, mm-hmm. I would say. <coughs> Ireland, <coughs> mm. uh, you know, get, getting into the hospitals, getting into the schools and doing all that stuff that the empire couldn't because they were so far away. Uh, there's a book on this called French Missionaries in the Modern World in God's Empire uh, by Owen White. And one of, one of the beneficial features of the, these missionaries was particularly the Protestant ones is they tended to be very interested in translating the Bible into the local language. Mm. Uh, I don't know oh, if that yes. was the case here, but often that's the first time a lot of languages of colonized people get written down is because you know you need to you need to have your bible yeah and it's definitely the case that the languages of the people there were you know from the oral tradition and were not written down mm. in 1847 the missionaries had to retreat as they were attacked by the locals this was apparently motivated by their uh, lack of sharing of their their resources they are on a on a small, you know, relatively small island. So when there is a lack of resources, the, the need is great and they were attacked and they weren't very good at sharing. The missionaries were also discouraging of the customary nudity on the island. Mm. Even the um, even the bagayus, 
which are the uh, like wiener wiener sheets, uh, which is a bit counterintuitive. <laughs> well, you I know, think the technical like term is penis gourds. <laughs> You'll find. What like one of the first pictures on, on a New Caledonia Wikipedia page you're presented with is is just two lads in yeah. the nip with um, two lads and their lads with uh, well with kind of hollowed out fruit on their uh, as their only clothing. It's an interesting yeah, fashion choice, so. but it's quite warm. So, but but crucially, it does cover the penis. Sure, which does make <laughs> me a bit like, why were you guys uh, like you can wear tops. But naked from the waist down. That's 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 the, the Catholicism we're espousing. I'm not, I'm not sure that's I'm not sure what that, that the guidance from the Pope was on that, Barry. Look, shut up. We're Porky Pig in it. <laughs> <laughs> the Pope, Pope doesn't know. Can't hurt him. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, so they, they were uh, mm, civilizing them by making them wear clothes, um, which was a bit mm, not great. Uh, the Kanak at the time had enormous cultural diversity. Uh, tribe groups were somewhere in between 200 to 5,000, depending on where you were. Um, and we were talking about languages earlier. On Grand Terre alone, I read uh, 36 uh, distinct languages, which is bonkers. But not unusual for the region. I mean, most of Polynesia and, and Indonesia and Melanesia, it's just language density is insane. Just every mm. tribe has their own. That's Europe true. is the weird one here, where like... We kind of killed all the minority languages in the 19th century and made national ones. But it seems impractical, though, to think that, you know, for instance, New Caledonia is a great example, made up of lots Mm. of islands. If you're a Kanak person from one island, as soon as you go across to another island, your language is unintelligible to the local residents But people didn't didn't travel except to trade occasionally. And when you do that, you'd have some kind of compromise language or sign language to... um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. you know, trading is quite straightforward. Is how much for this thing? <laughs> but 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 it probably does. I mean, it probably does speak to I would say uh, economic underdevelopment mm. of the time. I mean, the, the, the level of trading, yeah. po- though possible, probably was not as crazy gun shooting into the air capitalism as was probably facilitated in Europe by massive swathes of land all with the same language, which probably would allow for like more diverse and complicated kinds of trade and, you know, selling futures and things and all this kind of yes, stuff. Yes, rather than just subsistence farming would be most of what yeah. you do when you get on with your life and you fish and you eat and you fish and you eat and you grow taro and you eat and then and you die. six <laughs> or seven years later you die. It's, it sounds, sounds fine yeah. to me. Living in the sun. <laughs> so, uh, also have to mention uh, they did partake in a bit of cannibalism oh, yeah. occasionally, but mainly, mainly ritualistic. And you know, it is eighty days, so cannibal, cannibal, cannibal. Obligatory cannibalism. Um, so we also have in eighteen fifty three, uh, Rear Admiral Fevrier Dupont officially takes possession of New Caledonia and its dependencies. So it now is officially part of France, as far as France is concerned. Uh, Numea which is, of course, the capital today, became a colonial enclave, as we discussed. Uh, military uh, garrisons, prisons, and, of course, brothels. Yay. And, and also white, and also very, very male. The 1864 Governor's Ball had 60 men and nine women. So I have a little bit about, like, the... Um, I was reading this book called Exile to Paradise by a woman called Alice Bullard, and it kind of talks a lot yeah. about the French... Uh, national consciousness at this time you know this was around the time when the third french republic was formed and it's it's like a Mm -hmm. a new secular french republic uh and i guess one of the things that she she talks extensively about in that book is that 
morals and moralization and particularly moralization of, of savages and civilization of savages as they were seen uh, was an important, you know, kind of point around which, you know, around which to gather society and kind of, right. you know, become uh, like point, you know, point the moral compass and be like, you know, we, we are the civilized people and our, our purpose is to civilize, uh, you know, uncivilized people. The world. Yep. Yeah. It's a worldview. Yeah, it's a worldview, and it's this point around which they 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 kind of all uh, collected, and and this was very much the way of thinking with a lot of the French colonies, particularly uh, New Caledonia. She says that uh, one of the, a French publication, L'Illustration, reported uh, on the day that the colony was acquired by France. They said that the natives belong to one of the lowest and ugliest of races. They are cannibals. Jesus. They are usually judged as extremely solemn, sad taciturn and sober of speech never has one seen them laugh joke speak with vivacity or even demonstrate any curiosity and you know the kind of uh you know the 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 people that were sent to to kind of minister to this this new colony were you know this is what they were they were seemingly hoping to fix i guess and just just one more brief quote here a guy called charles lemire who was a member of the leadership, the French leadership in New Caledonia, said, to colonize is to moralize. To moralize people ignorant of civilization, to moralize men rendered vicious by the abuses of civilization, there is no better way of attaining this goal than through colonizing. Right, so... So they were... <clears throat> yeah, that that was that kind of speaks a little bit to the, to the French attitude at the time. They were like, this is a problem that we have to fix. It's for your own good. Yeah, so... Yeah. Well, so... Around this time, uh, I mentioned prisons. Uh, it was it was a big prison colony for for the French. Twenty thousand prisoners in wow. total were sent to New Caledonia, but uh, generally no more were housed there than eight thousand at any given time. Um, among the prisoners, uh, you had quite a few uh, Arabs from some of the French campaigns in North Africa and Arabia, uh, and also uh, four thousand prisoners from the Paris Commune in eighteen seventy one, oh. which was just to briefly, it was you know a revolution that happened in Paris, where Paris kind of declared independence essentially from the rest of uh, from the rest of mm. France. Uh, Prussia had had just won the Franco yeah. Franco Prussian War, and uh, fr- Paris in particular uh, had been under siege, and Paris was kind of singled out for a lot of unpleasantness. Uh, and they were like, eh, we're done. We're, we're sick of this. This sucks. Uh, and they cl- declared commune and it ended up being very shooty, nightmarish yep. stuff. So 1878, in total, 80,000 cattle were imported to New Caledonia, which became a bit of a bugbear for, for the, the Kanak. They, des- well, they desecrated their burial grounds mm-hmm. and uh, damaged their crops. This was accompanied by a succession of decrees over these years that disenfranchised the Kanak from their lands. The French also... W- w- they appointed their own tribal leaders, hmm. which competed with hmm. the, you know, the actual structure, of the, the actual tribal structure that existed. And it meant that for anything that had to do with the government, they had to go through the government tribal leader. But at the same time, they still viewed their tribal leader as their tribal leader. So there was competing tribal leaders, and that kind of overall weakened the, the fabric of, of Kanak society. This is actually where I throw in what I learned about this oh, yeah. local legend. Uh, so you, you mentioned, Mark, disenfranchisement of Kanak people um, because of the contracts and things that the colonizers made them sign. So I think a lot of that was very typical colonialism. Here, sign this. This mm. means that you'll get X, Y, and Z. Yep. But of course, it means something completely different. And it's set up in such a way that the local people can't understand it. 
So there's a local legend of a queen. Um, she was a princess at the time of one of the tribes on the Isle of Pines, and her name was Hortense, uh, which is a French name because which she got when she was educated um, by the French in a nunnery. So this was kind of unusual at the time because she'd grown up in the Canac tradition, but was actually sent to a nunnery to be educated in the French uh, style. In in metropolitan France? That is my understanding. I may have got that wrong. She may have just been in Numea. But either way, she was educated with a French education and brought up to speak French, to read and write in French. So she was actually the heir to the chiefdom of her tribe. But there was some sort of wars of succession going on because I've, I think the story was that her tribe was absolutely fine with a woman coming to power but the other tribes weren't. Hmm. So there were some issues around succession there. So she fled for a couple of years because she feared for her life. She felt that she would be assassinated because essentially that would be the easiest way to solve the succession issue. If you could get the woman out of the way, then the woman couldn't rule. She went and hid out in a cave where she had some um, trusted sort of advisors and essentially people on her side who would take her supplies, food, and bring her news of the ongoing... Um, succession issues and wars so when eventually she came out of hiding one of the ways that she proved herself to be sort of a worthy leader was uh, with this issue of contracts so some French colonizers came to the island um, and to this specific tribe with some contracts basically saying you know we're going to take your land but don't worry it's all good it's all here in the contract and uh, you're going to benefit from it so the tribal uh, chief said Hold on a second, just before I sign that, I might ask my daughter to take a look over it. <laughs> oh, by the way, she happens to speak and read French. Ooh, right. um, oh no, a literate savage. Yeah. What have we created? <laughs> what have we created? We can't exploit them Exactly. So, so it's a local legend that's kind of, it's very much still told. It's very much in the consciousness of the mm. people there, which I think speaks to the fact, just this kind of idea of how they were repeatedly oppressed by this colonialism which which seeks to undermine their rights based on providing them with things that they didn't understand and their kind of fighting spirit to try and fight against that. And yeah. she, you know, she is essentially the symbol of that fighting okay. spirit. Um, just to mention, we're, we're using the word kanak. Uh, it's, it's worth mentioning that that comes uh, from a term meaning you know, person of the land. I think the term actually originally comes from Hawaii, was then turned into French with... C-A-N-A-Q-U-E-S. Um, but it, it's worth saying it was a really pejorative mm. term for a really, really long time. It's only in the 1960s uh, that they changed the name to K-A-N-A-K and the name was essentially reclaimed. Yeah. But um, Some it, people still know, prefer to be just was, called was, Melanesian. Um, and it was kind of the, the, the N-word of... Of, of this area yeah. for for a long time, it was very dismissive, very you know imbued with a lot of derogatory meaning. But uh, it's it's become reclaimed and it's become the the term that the, the Kanak use for themselves. But anyway, yeah, just to mention that. So back to the burgeoning colonization, mm-hmm. uh, as you mentioned, uh, John, the kind of they were following the colonization playbook pretty closely. Uh, a lot of divide and conquer. Uh, some of the chiefs collaborated in 1862. Chief Owatu was given brandy, beef, and a thousand francs mm. for turning on two other hostile chiefs. Uh, four years earlier, a collaborator was killed, and the tribe that did it were deported, and their children given to the missionaries. Oh, so they were, they were kind of fostering favorites among the different uh, chiefs. In 1867, a guillotine was set up on the beach at Puebo 
and 12 Canucks were executed in reprisal for gendarmes Oof. getting killed. That's, so, that's something the British never did. I, I have to mention that I, I, I read this book, Blood on Their Banner, Nationalist Struggles in the South Pacific by David Roby. Uh, really, really good. And if we ever do uh, Tahiti or Fiji or anything like that, I'll have a lot in that as well. But he lists a lot of these kind of one-off events that were just building tension uh, up until 1878, which is one of the big, one of the big events. Uh, in 1878, a French settler and former convict stole a woman from a tribe, which is what a, a thing people did. They'd God. steal a woman. I'm going to put you in a bag and put you on my back and steal you. Yeah, we, we, um, we saw that in, 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 New, in uh, Tasmania as well, right? People like, yeah. just, uh, particularly young women just being abducted from the native population is, is yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's crazy that that can actually happen. But yeah. Pretty bleak. Um, so, uh, yeah, just uh, another note. Incidentally, they, they referred to such women, mistresses, and even the resulting children as poppinets or black dolls. Just, just in case you were wondering who to root right. for in, in this. So her tribe took revenge and killed the former convict, killed his mistress, and killed their child. Okay. Um, the French then harsh. reacted to all of this uh, by imprisoning various tribal chiefs which just inflamed the Kanak. They attacked in their hundreds. They freed their chiefs. They killed lots of convicts and wardens, uh, about 30 in total, and killed 124 people overall. Wow. Chief Atai was the mastermind behind all this, and this is a really influential uh, event in the independence struggle, in kind of the creation of the legend Mm. of the independence struggle uh, of, of the Kanak people. Before this revolution, or attempted revolution, he had tried personally to explain the plight of the Kanak to the governor with two sacks. He poured out a sack filled with earth and explained, this was what we had, and then a second sack of stones, and this is what you are leaving us. Hmm. They prepared well, uh, they had hoarded guns, and they'd, they did a lot of recon on key sites, and one thing I, I thought was really cool, they'd set up safe houses in the hills so that they could strike and then vanish back into the forest and, and hide out there. So this, this was very successful. As I say, they, they killed 124. Um, but then, inevitably, there were reprisals. Uh, many French troops were sent in. They slashed and burned Kanak villages, killing men, taking women captive, of course. On September 1st, they surprised a tie, uh, cut his head off and sent it to Paris. Surprise! <laughs> Surprise! Uh, they took a scorched earth policy, shipped in troops from Vietnam, which was a colonial outpost of theirs. Oh, yeah. Uh, they shipped in about 5,000 troops in total, um, which led to 1,200 Kanak dead. That is a 10 to 1 ratio for anyone counting. And that must be a huge percentage of the Kanak population at that time. It's si- significant, I would say. And they sent another 800 to the Isle of Pines and still more out to Tahiti. Oh. The Isle of Pines, I think, was, was where the convicts were being kept. Um, the Kanak that were left were entirely devastated. Uh, they were left on the tops of mountains and the bottoms of valleys, only on the crappest, crappest mm. land. To hell or to Kanak? Yeah, exactly. To, to hell or to Kanak. Uh, <laughs> gra- gradually, they were moved from 320,000 hectares to 120,000 hectares. And it's worth pointing out that so- something that, that gets discussed in one of the recent agreements between the French government and the Kanak people mm-hmm. is how important land was to the identity of Kanak tribes. Yeah. Uh, like it was really fundamental to their sense of who they were, was that they were connected to a particular place. And so 
this must have had devastating psychological impact on not just economic, but like really you're ripping a tribe away from its lands that it has had since the beginning of time. That was specifically mentioned in, in, in what I read. Because ultimately that's where a lot of the oral history is yeah, bound yeah, exactly. up in. It's the land. They, they were essentially broken yeah. as a people. Uh, from from 42,000 people in 1887, they were down to 28,000 by the turn of the century. Um, there were also um, native regulations which were passed. Uh, crimes included witchcraft, charlatanism, showing a lack of respect, disturbing the peace of whites, and breaches of the leprosy regulations. Okay. It's, it's also worth mentioning that there was a lot of imported labor around this time. So the Kanak, as a, as a percentage of the people on the island, was just going down and down. Their, their numbers were going down materially, but also as a percentage. 7,000 Japanese were imported to work in, in mines, mm-hmm. nickel mines, nickel being found in 1880, uh, and another 7,000 or so Javanese for a coffee industry that was started there. Um, mentioning would, nickel, would this be a, a good a good moment for me to jump in with? Uh, it probably would. Let's let's just take a quick break here. How about that? And then we can talk about nickel okay. after that. You can geek out on your chemistry after after a quick break. Joe, how's yeah. that? Fine. I, I hope this is heavy metal. <laughs> 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 as good a time as any to talk about one of the primary industries that that uh, New Caledonia has. It's been important since the French got there, basically, until the current day. So it all goes back millions and millions of years. That's a really long time. Um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Grand Terre, the, the main island, uh, it contains a significant amount of mineral-rich areas, about a third of the island. And this is because it's largely made up of what are called ultra-basic massives, which is a Really cool phrase. Great band name. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, And these are kind of raised areas that used to be magma that got pushed all the way up to the surface from the Earth's core. And so is much more rich in a lot of metals than is normal in the Earth's crust. And so you've got huge amounts of iron and nickel and cobalt and so on. Uh, much more than you normally get anywhere except in meteors. So, so the magma brings the nickel back? Exactly. Is that oh. what you're saying? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> A classic nickelback reference there, guys. <laughs> Showing your age. For, for those of you who've only listened to this one episode, we like to make a Chad Kruger reference to, in every episode, we, we <laughs> Really, have, do we? Uh, or, 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 other, or, or other allied Canadian rockers. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, did these... Mineral-rich rocks provide an opportunity for territory. The, the, the ores have been mined here and exploited for copper, lead, zinc, and cobalt. And it's worth pointing out that cobalt isn't as important today as it used to be, but between 1890 and 1910, New Caledonia was the world's leading site of, of cobalt production. 
just reading a little bit about this, I, I, I've found some fun stuff. So, Cobalt, uh, does anyone know what, where the name comes from? No. Nope. Uh, is it Greek, Cobalt? Uh, I think you're on to the right thing. It's a Battlestar Galactica reference is, is, is more fresh no. in my mind, if I'm honest. So, but, so uh, it, co- it's cobalt. the German, Cobalt is the German word for goblins oh. that live in the mountains. Mm. Spooky. And uh, miners basically called certain ores that were cobalt rich, they called them goblin copper or whatever. Because when you tried to smelt it like you would in a copper ore, it just produced this kind of uh, arsenic oxide gas, which is very unpleasant. It, it smelt of arsenic? Smelt, smelt? It's a bit, you know, noxious and toxic and doesn't produce a, a metal. So you have this rock, you think it's got copper in it, you try to smelt it and you just produce poison. So it's, it's you know, goblin. And it's sort of blue coloured as well, which is goblin-y. <laughs> of course. So that's a cool name. It's the first metal discovered since antiquity. So sometime in the 1700s, up till then, it had just been gold, silver, iron, copper, zinc. Dickhead metals, as I call them. And um, <laughs> cobalt actually played an essential role in, in this region because when Europeans tried to farm sheep in New South Wales and cattle in New Zealand, they found that they were really unhealthy and were wasting. And this is because of a lack of cobalt in the soil in those uh-huh. regions compared to Europe. Right. So these animals weren't getting enough cobalt which you need for vitamin B12 to work. And uh, they may, need, needed to make these pellets for the livestock. <laughs> livestock pellets. Cobalt from nearby was helpful. But production of pretty much all of these metals stopped in the 1930s because bigger deposits are found in Ontario. and in Blame Canada. In Katanga province in the uh, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, I think. Katanga. <laughs> it, is pre- it is democratic. Yeah. I, yeah, I'd heard um, that. <laughs> it is pretty democratic. The first word that comes to mind. These mines also had limited impact on the the kind of landscape because they were shaft mines. You dig a single shaft and then do the mining and bring it up through a hole. So nowadays you wouldn't see much evidence of it. The nickel, on the other hand, the country's biggest um, resource, has left huge marks on the landscape. I don't know, John, would you have seen Ooh, this? Yeah, I have seen them. Okay, so I'll, I'll come back to you in a second then. Nickel is Group 10 transition metal with atomic number of 28. Joe, what are you... You're telling them what they know already. Come on, wise up. <laughs> Jesus. I know. <laughs> okay, how, how close is it to the lanthanides, Joe? That's what we really need to know. Quite how, far. How quite in? far from the lanthanides. What the flip? Uh, it was dis- discovered by a Swedish chemist, uh, Kronstedt, in 1751. And it was called Kupfernickel, meaning, uh, you know... Old Nick's copper, like the devil's copper. <laughs> okay. Uh, which, is, which is a cool name, I think. And uh, it's used in things like making stainless steel for rockets and, 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 and spaceships and planes, which is awesome. Uh, a US nickel coin is 25% nickel. What a swizz. Yeah, a I nickel know. nickel coin is 25% nickel. And you call it a nickel? What's, what are they doing? My day is 27%. I blame Kennedy. Uh, it's used to hydrogenate vegetable oils Great. and also to electroplate silver. It was discovered in New Caledonia in 1864 by Jules Garnier the, in these really rich deposits. So a mineral that was called Garnierite after him had like uh, 10 to 15% nickel mm. in the ore, which is a really high amount of metal in, in, a, in a rock. So this was exceptionally valuable resource. Uh, it was pretty much mined to extinction quite quickly. But the rest of the island still does huge sections with 2 to 5% nickel in the ores, which are, have been mechan- mechanically mined by these large companies 
since the 1800s to the modern day. And this is done by the, the, the strip mining that, John, maybe you can describe what that looks like. Yeah, so you can see it. I saw it from the ship and it's sort of entire swathes of the coast um, that you can see when you actually leave the island. Um, it takes on a completely different colour. Kind of a red colour, right? Yeah, well, the, and there's some kind of mm. greeny colours as well. I'm not sure whether that's to do with oxidisation. Um, yeah, so the green would be the, the richer deposits, I think. Right, I see. So we just saw huge areas of this where it would all look the same, this kind of uniform colour of what looks like, you know, dust from far away. I'm sure that's mm. not what it actually looks like when you're up close. Trucks driving over it and very industrial looking with barrels and etc. But it, it does mm. give the impression it's like a scar on the landscape because it's not used for anything else. And the size, uh, the amount of land that's taken up for it is quite shocking. Um, so I've put some pic- I've taken some pictures, so we'll put those up in the yeah. show notes as well, just to give you a sense of the scale of it. And you basically need to remove whole layers of earth before you get at the nickel rich. I think it's about 30 metres down, the nickel rich. Oh my God. So they're just ripping away huge amounts of earth and stripping it. Not unlike what we saw in Nauru at the phosphate mining. You just have like, I was going to say, yeah. And mm-hmm. so this is as a, where all the other mining was quite artisan. You know, you kind of dig a, a shaft into the mountain, you take out the metal and then you move on. This is just like cutting off a hill and has yeah. a huge impact on the, wow. on the environment. I, I had a look on uh, various metal-based websites. Uh, one of them actually um, mentioned that New Caledonia is still, even today, the fourth biggest yeah. producing area of, uh, of nickel in the world. Yeah, so so it's, it's still, still massively relevant. It, it's got, I think, 10% of the world's reserves. There's about 7 million tonnes of uh, yeah. nickel still in, in the earth there. It's a huge part of the economy all the way through. It peaks in the 70s um, and has mm-hmm. been declining slowly ever since. And the company that was set up to exploit it, Société Le Nickel, very inventively named, <laughs> uh, founded by Jules Garnier and a few other people, this became owned by the Rothschild family. Oh. Oh, wow. Who, who made huge use from the 1880s on. And uh, to the extent that Theo, one of the mining towns, was, was called uh, like Theo Le Rothschild. Really? In, in newspapers. Oh. Or, and also Nickel Town. Oh <laughs> so some of the smelting is done there as well. But nowadays, I think mostly it's just mined and sent off to other countries to be smelted. Right. Um, so super important. Uh, bit of chemistry. Uh, d- devil copper. Well, hello and welcome to 80 Days a Chemistry Podcast. Yeah. I've been dreaming of this day. (laughs) (laughs) I may have gone on at length about the periodic table in this episode, but I'm going to be very brief in reminding you about the possibility of making periodic stable contributions to 80 Days and Exploration Podcast through Patreon.com. Patreon allows listeners like you to support us in making this show and to influence the direction we take as we go forward you can back us at any level that suits your budget, from $1 per episode all the way up to $10 per episode, with various different rewards for each tier of support. And those rewards are listed on patreon.com slash 80dayspodcast. Of course, we appreciate all the support we get. It really helps us keep doing this project and lets us know that you're, you're enjoying it and that you really believe in what we're doing. And so uh, thanks to all those who have donated so far. Their names are listed on our website, and uh, we hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Okay, so uh, into the 20th century, 
things obviously were not great for the native population of New Caledonia, as, as Marcus has elaborated on. Uh, there were insurrections in 1856 and 1878, which, uh, you know, showed the French uh, colonizers that there was definite, you know, underlying resistance to, to their presence there on the island. I've got a quote here from a book by a guy called Robert Aldrich, which is uh, entitled The French Presence in the South Pacific, 1842 to 1940. Catchy title. Which says the 187... <laughs> mm, very, very simple. Uh, and what's it about? The 187... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> recipes um the 1878 insurrection left 200 europeans and 1200 melanesians dead the colonists were terrified by the rebellion and demanded harsh punishments one contemporary writer said that the settlements demanded nothing less than the extermination in mass by every means of the indigenous race they saw no other remedy than the annihilation of the kanak race without distinction of friends or enemies the administration was less bloodthirsty but deported 600 insurgents to the isle of pines another 200 to the Belep Islands, and still other Melanesians to Tahiti. So, you know, the, the French were really, really into making their presence felt when uh, when the indigenous population rose up against them. God, yes. Their default response was, you know, we want to we want to do harsh punishments here to to ensure this doesn't happen again. It, it's it's worth mentioning just, I mean, we've talked about the, the Société Linical, and uh, they also are kind of, they're, a very insidious influence from their founding mm. throughout all this period and into into the into the more modern day as well, um, because as well as just having colonials who are scared and you know the French say, well, we're France, we can't put up with this kind of guff. Uh, there's also an economic imperative as well, yeah. which makes all of the punishments and all of the kind of retribution that more vicious and more unpleasant and more more mm. killy. Um, because mm. there's money on the table as well. So it raises the stakes for the French. So yeah, the, there was forced labor, uh, limitations on travel for Kanak people. There were curfews that were imposed uh, from the early days of occupation. <gasps> In 1887, these uh, these kind of rules were codified formally into a system of administrative law known as the Indigna, I think, or... Uh, Indigna, isn't it, Sean? Indigna? Yeah, I suppose it would be Indigna. Okay. Uh, in 1894, then the French also introduced a head tax whereby every male over the age of 21 and under the age of 55 will be required to pay a tax. And you can avoid that by a, a guillotine treatment. By having fewer heads. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of the Canucks didn't at this time work, you know, weren't formally paid for the work that they, they didn't did. They didn't work in capitalism. They worked in just like eating yes. and cooking. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this, is how, this is how you always get people. You're like... But my system yeah. says you have to have money. It's like, but what's money? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Come and work in a mine. So a lot of them were, were were essentially forced to undertake paid work in order to be able to raise money just to pay their taxes. Right. Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah. In 1903, the Indigena was, was extended, uh, requiring natives to work a certain number of days each month on public works projects mm -hmm. and prohibited them from moving freely around the colony. Uh, and barred them from uh, staying, like remaining in Numia after a certain time. So they were essentially kicked out, you know, at, at sunset or whatever. Mm. And all of these rules remained in, in force until 1946, which is, wow. you know, is a, is a long time. And it's, it's, you know, it's kind of, you would hope that uh, the French would have, would have wised up a bit before that. It, it's living memory at that not. point, at that point. Like that's, yes. there's people alive yeah. now that were alive then. Yep. <sighs> 
Uh, I've got one more quote here from that book from Robert Aldrich, which I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. In in many other ways, uh, islanders were, were victims of the whites. Some accounts of contacts between Europeans and islanders in New Caledonia and the New Hebrides are catalogs of mistreatment of the indig- in uh, the indigenous people. Native women were kidnapped, forced into a kind of servitude, and often raped. Physical attacks on indigenous people were far from uncommon. Wages were often not paid and were meager in the extreme. Merchants often overcharged natives using false weights and measures or tampering with bills. Access to education was routinely unavailable. Disputes between different clans or tribes were encouraged, and colonists pressured doctors to remain in their offices at the settlers' beck and call rather than ministering to the natives. Great. That 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 kind of paints a, a, a lovely picture of what uh, what the natives were undergoing in New Caledonia at this time. Can I can I drop in one other terrible detail? Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. So it's something I I've kind of forgot to get mentioned my my own section. Looking up New Caledonia in the in the eighteen hundreds, something that you see is reference to blackbirding. Mm. And blackbirding is something we encountered in in Easter Island, Rapa Nui. Essentially, it's it's kidnapping of local people and shipping them off basically as slaves. Uh, It's generally referred to as blackbirding and not slavery, but it's slavery. That's what it is. Or indentured servitude at best. Uh, And I couldn't find reference to, you know, people being kidnapped off New Caledonia, which was kind of confusing. And then I realized it's actually because it was a destination for people who were being blackbirded to work in the mines and work in the coffee plantations and work in all these things. So as well as the the, the the Kanak, you have people from other Polynesian islands and areas um, being dropped off here uh, with, you know, who are also okay. falling victim to the same uh, punitive rules and regulations and stuff, but had no say in going there in the first place. They've been, you know, trafficked there essentially for for economic reasons and so this is where a lot of the polynesian population will come from yeah there's a lot there's a significant you know population from other polynesian islands even today so yeah that's that's probably where those but people quite are. quite diverse yes. polynesians yes. are kind of from yeah. all over there's no one single group i actually came across a very striking statue while i was there in a park in Noumea. Uh, relating to slavery and mm. blackbirding on the islands the statue is of a black leg and foot um, manacled and chained to something um, and there's there's no person above it it's just the lower leg and the foot oh yeah I see it here now yeah I've put it up here so we'll maybe add it to the show notes it's the the the, the foot is kind of manacled yeah. to the, the plinth upon which it's standing yeah yes mm. and there's an inscription on the statue which reads erected at the time of the commemoration of the abolition of slavery to preserve the memory of slavery for future generations so that such an attack on human dignity may never be repeated. To promote understanding and friendship between individuals, between peoples, between nations. All right. Hmm. Um, moving swiftly along, uh, World War I comes along in uh, 1914 and uh, French administrators attempted to recruit the Canucks into the war effort, uh, which put even more pressure on the already strained relations between these two groups. Uh, so they were like, sorry for uh, oppressing you guys and, and denying you your, your, your civil rights, but will you come fight for us in, in Europe? Um, oh, God. It's a hard sell. Yeah, it is. Um, so in 1917, I guess partly because of this and also because of just, you know, numerous other, other pressures on the on the Kanak people, another rebellion broke out in the north of the main island uh, over the course of three months. European farmers and settlers were attacked by natives, uh, violence spread throughout the island, and French forces, similar to what they did in uh, 1878, offered incentives to tribal leaders to offer up information 
and actively encouraged uh, split loyalties between different Kanak groups and also, of course, used their superior firepower to put down the rebels. Uh, I believe that the, the kind of ringleader was was shot and killed. Uh, five of the rebels then, after the, the whole thing had been quashed, were put to death and more than 50 were sentenced to forced labor or sent to prison. So again, kind of coming down very hard on any kind of uh, insurrection by native people. Um, by the end of the 19th century, large areas of the Melanesian land had been alienated from them and their inhabitants had been relegated to, like you mentioned earlier, Mark, to, to the, the worst parts of the island. So this is, this is kind of very much like Indian reservations or something. Yeah, yeah. You can go and do your native thing over there with your chiefs and your whatever. Yeah. Uh, leave us alone. I've got a pretty startling stat here. Between 1878 and 1931, the Kanak population on New Caledonia fell by more than 50%. Sounds about right. Yeah. Oh, from around 60,000 to just over 27,000. So that's, you know, not even a, a you know a, a lifetime and you've lost half mm. of your population. Yep. Um in June 1940, after the fall of France in the Second World War, the Consul General of New Caledonia voted una- unanimously to support the Free French Government rather than the Vichy French Government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for anybody un- unfamiliar with World War II, uh, that's the, the French Government in exile. The, w- the ones that weren't Nazis. Yes, the not Nazi yeah. ones. Um, in September, the pro-Vichy government was forced then to leave New Caledonia for Indochina. And in 1942, with the assistance of Australia, the territory became a very important allied base, for, particularly for American forces. Noumea was the headquarters of the U.S. Navy and Army in the South Pacific. Yep. And uh, the fleet that turned back the Japanese Navy in the Battle of the Coral Sea in 1940, May 1942 was based in Noumea. Wow. In 42, a group of American soldiers, like it's, a, it's a, apparently a 48-day journey for them to, to come from New York to New Caledonia, sure. which I'm wow. sure was Jesus. not, yeah, was not a pleasant uh, journey, and uh, up to fifty thousand troops, I believe, uh, in total, would end up being stationed in New Caledonia over the course of the war. The task force that landed there was ordered to hold the island against Japanese, obviously, who had been uh, kind of taking over various different islands and, and um, territories in this area, and who had been keeping a close eye on New Caledonia, according to uh, reports that the Allies had obtained. The U.S. forces would reinforce Australian and French troops on New Caledonia and uh, defend New Caledonia's very important natural resources, its harbour and its as-yet-unfinished airfields, which would be crucial to the war in the Pacific. Needless to say, nickel and copper and uh, and 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 all the other resources were being heavily yeah. used oh, yeah. during the war. Yeah, this was a this was a peak time. Yeah, and you would think, oh yeah, this is like it's great that they they were sort of invested in uh, defending mm. the island in this way, but. <laughs> you know, really, I'd say a lot of it was also to do with the... Defending the yes. mine. It wasn't for the conical huts they were defending yes. <laughs> Um So the, the coalition was known as the United Forces in New Caledonia. And I found, I found one of these... I love these uh, these old... Um, like Attention, America. boys! Yeah. These are... Yeah, it's uh, one of these old uh, kind of go- U.S. government... Uh, war films so i'm nice. going to drop in a quick clip here one of the locals mm. is wearing a silly yeah. hat isn't that charming <laughs> so we'll we'll hear a quick clip from that just here today not vichy france but a united nations ally fighting france is in possession of the island and here their troops are greeting the arrival of an aef in nunea the island's capital the first american troops ever to set foot in new caledonia 
a trim fighting force of trained soldiers parading under their stars and stripes deep in the South Pacific. The tiny native village which the French have named St. Louis plays host to the American soldiers in a most unusual fashion. They are dressed in their traditional Kanoka grass skirts, but some of them are adorned with undershirts donated by the soldiers. And the fast, exciting rhythms of their native dances treat the Americans to an unusual exhibition. Uh, so there are two, two very important Pacific naval battles in the spring of 1942. The Battle of the Coral Sea, which I mentioned earlier, and then in May, the Battle of Midway, which was a, obviously, for anybody who knows anything about World War II history, was a disaster for the Japanese. It was the battle. Yeah. Like they both resulted in, in heavy Allied victories, and uh, therefore the fears of an invasion of New Caledonia were, were eased for a time. But uh, yeah, it would later be discovered after the war that an, uh, Operation FS had been the Japanese plan to sever Australia's lifeline with America by capturing Fiji, New, New Caledonia, and Samoa. So they, they did have the eyes, mm. you know, obviously, I mean, I think, you know, even looking at a map of where uh, Japan invaded, in the, uh, you know, throughout the 30s and 40s, you, you would kind of guess that this was a, a place that they had their eyes on. Yeah. But in terms of actual fighting on New Caledonia, there wasn't really any. Um, American forces were never called into action there. But many of the troops that were stationed on New Caledonia and had acclimatized the island atmosphere would later be called to fight on uh, Guadalcanal, which again is, oh, is a yeah is a really important uh, and pivotal, bloody uh, Allied victory. Well, yeah. it would end in an Allied victory, but you know a, a, a massive amount of troops were lost in that battle. Um, and it also New Caledonia also served as kind of a support base for the Marines during that battle. Uh, so a number of navy ships were uh, went from Guadalcanal to Noumea uh, in New Caledonia to be repaired, and then would head back to Guadalcanal uh, as that as that battle was ongoing. Is interesting actually. I found a book about this time called uh, "The Rock of Contention." Uh, apparently, the 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 French name, like one of the French nicknames for New Caledonia, is the Rock. Right. So that's where the name comes from. It's about uh, the Free French forces and the Americans in New Caledonia, and seemingly the Americans really got on with the native population and yes. you know the, the 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 various different populations on New Caledonia. But uh, the Free French forces and the Americans really did not get on. Yeah. Uh, even though they were allies. So I'll, I'll, I'll lift a quick quote from her book here. It's, it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, she's written an entire book about it. So there's obviously a lot to talk about here, but I'll just I'll just touch on it briefly. On several occasions in New Caledonia, suspicion of the Americans became active and deliberate anti-Americanism on the part of the Gaullist Free French. Not only American actions and policies, but also an American physical presence came to be seen by them as a threat to French national and imperial identity. Charles de Gaulle's Resistance to the Americans became a counterbalance to the American wartime power and presence, which was anti-Americanism in that it meant resistance based upon principle. The Americans were and are, quote, just too big, as a French historian once commented in explaining the persistence of anti-Americanism in France. Although a pronounced strain of anti-Americanism existed in France before the war, a particular Gaullist free French hostility and resentment towards the Americans during the Second World War emerges from this tale of, co of contact in the South Pacific. General de Gaulle and his colleagues were determined to defend French imperial interests and a French way of life against what they perceived to be American domineering behavior and imperial ambitions. I also read that they uh, just paid the Kanak more. Yeah. 
<laughs> like because they, they right. hired lots of locals and they they paid the Kanak more than they would the local colonials who were known wow. as the, like caldos. Um, they uh, yeah, they just paid them more because they liked them more. That's another term we haven't mentioned yet. That's kind of the pejorative term for whites, mm. isn't it? Like white New Caledonians. You know, white Caldos. folk is also not 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 a term totally devoid of uh, of derogatory nature. Just because white people yeah. have done a lot that makes people think that it's pretty derogatory. <laughs> but the Caldos yeah. are sort of the New Caledonian-born yeah. whites, and then metros are the oh, true. True, true, true. kind of recent. Uh, you know, French, French people have just turned mm. up last week. So towards the end of the war, the free French forces and Charles de Gaulle also began to worry about this, the state of France's colonies. I think we spoke mm. about this in, oh, where was it? Um, Seychelles. Uh, it might have been the Seychelles, yeah, where it was sort of like, oh, we, we, we fought in this war for you guys. And it was kind of all about, you know, freeing and small, and small nation. nations yeah. and yeah, allowing yeah. independence of small nations and this sort of thing. And and Freedom. yeah, how is this, how is this reflecting on us? So that was obviously gonna gonna come to the fore here as as the war winds down. Uh, the status of French uh, France's Pacific colonies was also of great concern to Roosevelt, who felt that France would be <laughs> too weak to hold them if another war broke out. Correctly. Yeah, in 1945, he suggested that New Caledonia should be taken away from France and placed under a trusteeship. And he actually, that, that was in private, but publicly he called for an American military presence to remain there after the end of the war. So what you're saying is is, is the goalist paranoia was completely justified? Yes. Okay. <laughs> to a certain extent, to a certain extent. But they had a plan to do exactly what they were paranoid that they do. Well, I think um, Roosevelt wanted to have a military base there, but he did say that he didn't he didn't want um, to yeah. have it become a, an American he colony. He didn't want the trouble of ruling Yeah, he didn't want to have to rule like the place. He just, he just wanted stuff. it to yeah, be a, sure. a, an outpost, but... Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's. I, that's I would also easier. say that to, to defend uh, to defend Roosevelt, he was dealing with somebody whose whose you know first decisive act was to leave the country he's meant to be defending, uh, <laughs> and rely on America mm. to do all you know all the hard work for them. So mm. to assume that in some future scenario that wouldn't necessarily be exactly the same as what happened the first time, I think that's fair enough to be honest in terms of uh, yeah. Roosevelt's view. So a lot of colonial leaders uh, from different you know different areas of of. France's different colonies were demanding some kind of recognition, some kind of change in the system. Uh, and one of the, uh, de Gaulle's uh, responses to this was the, the Brazzaville Conference, in which the the Brazzaville Declaration was signed. Um, in that, uh, de Gaulle stated that uh, the French Empire would remain united, that semi-autonomous assemblies would be established in each colony, that citizens of France's colony would share equal rights with French, with French citizens, uh, citizens of French colonies would have the right to vote for the French Parliament. All the, like a lot of different uh, reforms intended to give uh, more, you know, uh, political power to uh, citizens in in France's different colonies. Yeah, but um, and make it less racist and exploitive. Yeah, but it also served for served as the goal for a way of him reasserting his control over these colonies. Like he's like, I'm going to mm. give you these powers. And that, you know, that inherently means that I am still in charge and I'm still, yeah. you know, I'm, by I'm accepting the, this, the, you're accepting the terms in which they're offered, which is that. Yes. Which is that we control you. Yeah. Um, and despite his, his concessions in, in Brazzaville, he wouldn't tolerate any talk of independence. Uh, I got a brief quote from him here. He says the aims, and this refers back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of France's uh, civilization, uh, you know, civilizing the natives um, kind of bent. He says, the aims of France's civilizing mission preclude any thought of autonomy or any possibility of development outside the French Empire. Self-government must be rejected even in the more distant future. 
Sound lad. <laughs> so that brings us up to uh, the end of, of uh, World War II. So around uh, 1946, I believe, New Caledonia becomes an overseas territory. I think mm-hmm. you're going to talk a little bit about that, Joe. Yeah, and so those changes you're talking about are underway. This this new concept of the French overseas territory uh, with all of the associated rights and so on kicks in. So this is when, instead of being a colony, New Caledonia is kind of becoming part of France. They will have representatives in Parliament. They are French citizens. By uh, 1953, all residents have been given French citizenship regardless of race, which was a a new state of affairs. Mm -hmm. For the first time in a while, the Kanak were actually the majority of the population, uh, just due to kind of natural population growth uh, and kind of a decrease in in immigration from other places. Um, And the post-war economy grew on foot of a demand for nickel. And it became a lot more urban. So we kind of talked about how the Americans paid the local people to do, you know, wage yep. labor. And this kind of had a decent impact on, on how society was structured. You know, a lot of people moved away from agriculture into cities, into towns. Uh, service industry started growing in both the public sector and private sector. And metropolitan France, the government there really pushed tourism as a thing to be focused on. Right. Rather than going back to subsistence farming as a, an activity. There was a, a party founded called the Union Caledonienne, mm-hmm. which was a sort of a mildly, not independence movement necessarily, but definitely a kind of an autonomy movement. And it's quite multicultural. Yeah. So it got support from both kind of reform-minded Kaldosh whites and also Kanak started buying into this this party, hmm. and it made it made some gains and took power in the fifty seven elections in the territorial assembly. But it's kind of a double edged sword comes up here where there was a nickel boom in nineteen sixty nine to nineteen seventy two. Nickel boom. Yep, like a gold rush. Nickel back. Less shiny. Nick, nickel. The steel marks joke from earlier. Boom. Nickel broom. <laughs> Nickel... Nickel's back, baby. Uh, Nickelbacker <laughs> glory. Uh, Nickelbacker nickel glory. That's a joke <laughs> there um, Demand was reaching this kind of all-time high, and this is great for the, the island's economy, particularly the economy, or the, 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 the profits of Societe Le Nickel, which may have already become mm. Eremet at this point. Profits. Mm, delicious profits. Mm-hmm. Money. <laughs> but the downside was that um, the increased demand for labour led to an increased immigration from metropolitan France and from Polynesia. And this was encouraged by the French government because they sort of saw the risks of independence movements as the Kanak population was kind of outpacing the white population. Yeah, And so they intentionally... Uh, gave economic incentives to people to move there. And an interesting thing is that Wallace and Fortuna, a nearby Polynesian um, territory, which I think is still an overseas department of France, half of the indigenous Wallacean population, or or possibly even more than half, now live in New Caledonia. So there's more ethnic Wallacians in New Caledonia than there are in Wallace. Weird. Which is crazy. Now, the population of Wallace isn't big. It's a couple of thousand people. But that's bonkers that there's more of them not in the country than in the country. Mm. And they make a significant minority now in New Caledonia. 
I've, I've also read that as an ethnic, or maybe better to say as a political group, their general motivations don't really lie with the Kanak. No, 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 no. Uh, somewhat surprisingly, and they've, they've been used as a counterweight mm-hmm. to them by, by the whites. Well, they, their uh, opportunities to move there and to, to work there are all sort of dependent on Frenchness, yeah. you know? Yeah, so they're in favour generally of, of um, continuing association with France rather than independence. Uh, and I have a quote here from a, an article I read, um, an article called New Caledonia, Crisis and Decolonization by John Connell. This was written in the late 80s. And he, he claimed that Melanesians resent the, the migrants who have ensured their minority status, right. slowed their movement into skilled employment and contributed to denying independence in New Caledonia. So that kind of sums up the tension between various ethnic groups. He also talks about how the shift in the economy made New Caledonia a a consumer colony with a widening divide between kind of a richer urban and poorer rural areas. And while Melanesians and Kanak did participate in in this growth and participated in these new industries and new service industries, it was usually as employees rather than business owners. And so... Yes, it led to kind of an increased money in pocket for individuals, but in terms of generational advancement and so on, they're not building wealth as a community. They're just bringing home a paycheck at the end of the month. They're not being allowed to build capital yeah. in the same way as, yeah. as other groups. And I'm, I'm not even sure if it's that they're forbidden from doing it. It's just the way the cards have fallen. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the way the cards have been engineered yes. <laughs> and given out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he, he uses this kind of, heart-rending phrase of how, how they're essentially observers to their own destiny rather than actors in it. Oh, yes. Sad. That's very um, Yeah, so, so after the boom, the nickel industry starts to contract uh, to only about 2,000 workers in the 80s and it would have shrunk even more if not kept afloat by French subsidies presumably lobbied mm. for by the various French mining companies with an interest in the area. Yeah. And this leads us into a dark period in, in 20th century history. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it certainly does. Um, just before we get onto that, let's take one last quick break and then we'll breathe through the rest of this. So we'll be back just after this break. Okay, so uh, Joe, you mentioned the Union Caledonienne. Mm-hmm. They're a very important group, founded in part by a guy by the name of Lenormand. Uh, he was a uh, white uh, a settler, I believe he was originally from France, uh, but he was married to a Kanak, so he, he was a kind of compromised figure. Uh, and with the message of two colours, one people, they were enormously successful at the polls. In the 50s, they they had a 
chance. Mm. They had a really good chance of uh, getting, uh, you know, things like universal suffrage, uh, trying to eke out some extra powers for the administration. But the reaction to that was uh, furious from the, the local white wing, as you might call them. Um, <laughs> well, the, 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 the way uh, I saw it described was that the pace of reform was slower than most Kanak would have wanted. So some of them start leaving to form more radical independence groups. And so the Union Caledonian sort of tries to double down on its radicalness. And that, that um, drives all the I, the scared white people together. I, Even I think, more no, so. I see. I think. I think. I think that happened later okay. on. I think that's true in like the seventies, yeah, 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 in the fifties. Yeah. It was just them doing anything oh, I see. and doing very, very meager kind of um, having any success. Essentially, just their 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 superiority in numbers being recognized by France, yeah. essentially through through the ballot box, um, led to these uh, turds in the North Caledonian Punch Bowl doing a lot of mad stuff to to kind of remove the the meager power they had been able to get. On June 18th, which was the anniversary of the Free French speech given by de Gaulle, a thousand settlers started demonstrating. Ten elected officials were taken hostage. Hmm. Uh, the French were worried by this yeah. uh, and put in a pro-colonial governor who refused to allow these new reforms to be passed and gradually, over the following decades, started stripping the local government of their powers. Le Normand was very strong at the ballot box, as were the uh, Union Caledonienne, and they kept, they kept winning, essentially. Hmm. Uh, which just kept making the right wing crazier and crazier. The Union Caledonian refused to allow the Société Le Nickel to have this massive tax break, which they were after. They wanted essentially tax-free business, um, which is nuts considering like the percentage of the economy that was based on mm-hmm. them. So somebody, I don't know, some, some crazy guy, uh, bombed the assembly. Uh, parliament was dissolved and the Union Caledonian were voted back in um, because nothing had really changed. Then the Union Caledonian HQ was bombed. Uh, two people were arrested. One was a former Israeli terrorist. Another was a former French soldier who claimed that Le Normand was actually the person who directed them to do it. Huh? Said that they were in cahoots with him, which obviously... Like a kind of a, like a false flag kind of thing. Yeah, which makes no sense. That soldier subsequently recanted mm-hmm. uh, his testimony and then killed himself. Uh, yeah. Nevertheless, Le Normand mm-hmm. was given a one-year suspended sentence and crucially banned from sitting in Parliament. So this was like, as well as kind of digging out um, the the reforms they tried to pass, they kind of destroyed the mechanism and the figurehead that they they'd rallied around. Um, in the sixties and the seventies, they just kept you know diminishing their powers, and then we're leading up until into the mid 70s when things start to take a, a, a really dark turn so, so when, when when does the the period called euphemistically the events begin would this be already um, or is this i mean the, the events are essentially marked by the violence okay. so you're thinking like early to mid 80s to the late 80s right so, um but it's all part of the same picture really from the mid 70s onwards just you know, there's... to me, that's a very familiar sort of euphemism. Like, oh yeah, you yeah. Know, in Northern Ireland, you had this period called yeah. the Troubles, which was a, you know, a, a thirty-year, on again, off again, sort of sectarian civil war, with with its own peaks and troughs. Yeah, with and, you know, this lull had some British army yeah. and yeah, police and this political and, development uh, forcing this and calling that the Troubles is quite an understatement. So uh, yeah, the events yeah, exactly. to me sort of screams. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the you more know, vague it is, I think, for these, like, you know, big historical conflicts, the more vague mm. the term used is, the, usually the worse the, the actual yeah. events are. Exactly. Um, so, Joe, you, you did mention the fragmentation of the UC, and it was because they had been disenfranchised, essentially, that this happened. Mm. And also, uh, there was 25,000 immigrants entered. Uh, Canuck population dropped to 41% of the island. So they were in the minority again. So in uh, 1977... Uh, the Union uh, Caledonienne sent a delegation to the UN to get relisted on the Decolonization Committee, which is a kind of a subgroup of, you know, these people are colonies, they don't want to be colonies, they want to be decolonized, therefore they're in this group. Um, a new generation of Kanak leaders emerged, uh, Yewene Yewene, uh, Jean-Marie Chibao, uh, which is a name worth remembering, Chibao, uh, Yurege and Iloy Machoro, and also Pierre de Klerk, who was, uh, who was French-born. He was the official head of the, the Union Caledonian. I believe, I believe he was white. Hmm. Uh, he was the main kind of white figure among, among, among this group. In 1980, the church came out in favor of independence, and Mitterrand, a socialist, was elected in France, so seen as a positive move for the Kanak. He had been keen to declare solidarity with the Kanak in 1979, and again, the... New Caledonia right wing was getting scared. September 1981, Pierre de Klerk, the white leader of Union Caledonian, was assassinated in his home. Hmm. His chest collapsed by 19 pellets of a shotgun Ooh. blast. Despite wow. some initial arrests, there was no one convicted of the murder. Uh, the right wing attacked pro-independence deputies with clubs. Machoro, Iloy Machoro, replaced de Klerk. Um, there were a lot of examples of heavy-handed French police actions throughout this period, including... One I read, which was a French policeman shooting dead an unarmed man who ran after he was, you know, shadow boxing with a friend of his on the side of the road. Um, the policeman got a 15-day suspended sentence. On the same day as that judgment was given out, two pro-independence pamphleteers were given two months in prison. Mm. Um, so it's just mm. like really one-sided stuff and is, is gradually contributing to the frustration being felt. 1984, many of the Kanak parties uh, coalesced to form the FLNKS. The Kanak and Socialist National Liberation Front. That's, that's yes, such an English. Yes, well done. And that's kind of like an umbrella party. Exactly. Jean-Marie Chibao was the head of this new party. Mm -hmm. He made speeches that relied on Kanak poetic imagery, oh. so the French could not translate them accurately. Mm, uh, so, nice. uh, which I love, and and the uh, so the yam and the taro and stuff was all doing some some heavy lifting there in terms of their their imagery. Yurege, who is one of the the guys I mentioned earlier, he went to Libya in this time for training with Gaddafi. eighty days old star alert. Gaddafi, oh, Gaddafi, another so, one. Some of the guys went to Gaddafi went to Gaddafi for training. That guy loved his decolonization. So FLNKS boycotted the nineteen eighty four vote. Uh, Chibao, who was a mayor at the time, refused to preside over the election in his area, and Machoro chopped a ballot box in two on camera. Hmm. Uh, Roby, who's the author of the book I was reading, uh, he, he himself was threatened by whites at the time. It was really, really tense. Uh, you know, there was people, you know, burning ballot cards and stuff. They were basically saying, this is a non-election. In 1984, then, we have the Hiegene Massacre. Kaldosh, or, you know, uh, whites, essentially, right-wing whites, uh, opened fire on Kanaks driving in a convoy, killing 10, including two brothers of Chibao. Uh, two years later, the people responsible were released without charge after the magistrate cited some mad old Napoleonic law about highwaymen. Essentially, the defense was, man, it's crazy times, man. 
Yeah, I didn't know what was going on. So, you know, it's cool, <laughs> basically. That, that was the defense, and they got off on that. Um, it, it has been held up as one of the, like, worst decisions in, in, uh, in legal history in, in you know, post-colonial um, uh, Polynesia. The Canucks in question had, in fact, just come back from a meeting where they decided to adopt peaceful means. Mm-hmm. Chibao was at the UN when the news of this decision broke and had this to say. This speech with rifles is the same as existed in the United States, in Australia, and it's in Tasmania, where there are no more blacks. That worked best. His point being that this form of speech with wow. you know, shooting people, well, they, they, they really achieved their aims in Tasmania, where they killed all of the black mm. people, not just, you know, you know, disenfranchise them and ruin their lives. So that's clearly uh, the way so, to go. Yeah, pretty. That's that's some serious, uh, like heavy hitting sarcasm. Mm. That's a man who's just had two of his brothers killed. Yeah. So the trial had a jury that was all white, of course, uh, but for one person, and took two hours to deliberate, including the time they had to eat dinner. Uh, it had to be held away from the normal courts, as the Kaldosh had bombed them in an attempt to free the accused. Right. The acquitted killers had to abandon their lives of farming and had to live off a small pension topped up by handouts from the National Front. Anyway, five weeks after the Hiagene massacre, French police assassinated Eloy Machoro. He was known as the Che Guevara of the South Pacific and his followers were known delightfully as machochos, as in muchachos. Mm. Uh, He was shot with a sniper rifle by French special forces, claiming both alternatively it was an accident... And also that he shot how, first. He didn't what? have a gun, as it happened. How do you snipe how somebody you... accidentally? Accidentally. That's... Uh, well, in, uh. in their view, they were trying to shoot him in the leg, and they shot him in the chest instead, and he With killed pinpoint him. pinpoint accuracy. It, it's but... worth mentioning that this is around the time of the sabotage of the Rainbow Warrior yeah. uh, in, in Auckland, and basically it was the same guys. That was a Greenpeace vessel, right, that was mm. sunk. Yeah. It was uh, protesting against the nuclear testing that was happening in, in another... Uh, French, French Polynesia territory in Polynesia exactly and um, basically the French had a lot of right wing military heavy hitters doing some secret scary stuff this time and one of the things was the assassination of Machoro and Machoro had also been to Libya for training and he was tough uh, an account of one of his men harassing a female journalist in his camp uh, he decked the man uh, knocking him out dragging him away and then whipping him with a piece of wire um, he was also very much getting under the skin of the whites by requisitioning meat and boats. So he was kind of the other, it was Chibao and Machoro. And Chibao was kind of the the diplomat, the guy going to the UN. Mm. And then you had, and Machoro, you know, in the hills, taking people out and then getting, getting assassinated. And the outcry was such that it prompted the French Prime Minister Mitterrand to make a surprise visit to New Caledonia. He met with Chibao alone and said, the threads which were almost severed have now been restored. So they were able to kind of calm things down uh, with Chibao as the, the calm negotiator. Uh, Machoro was the, the, the concurrent militant. The, the, the Malcolm X to... Uh, very much, to, to the MLK. To, and as we see yeah. very soon, Machoro was kind of the one, in, in a way, keeping the angry young men in line. Mm-hmm. But he was also the one that appealed most directly to them. And w- with the loss of Machoro, it kind of, it begins to fracture the, the Kanak as a political group. So, uh, Le Figaro, 
The right-wing French newspaper, still going today, uh, was stoking fears at this time with the following quote, It's just as if the Canucks were already warming the cooking pot. Uh, a delightful reference to their ooh, cannibalism. That's, um, is, yeah. that's a bit... Gross. Terrible. Um, the right-wing, right-wing riots got worse, uh, prompting the FLNKS to abandon their peaceful ways. At this time, I mean... There's a lot of a lot of examples of it following the Irish example. The, the Canucks had four um, four Canucks to each gun, and the Caldosh had four guns to each Caldosh. So they were massively outgunned. Uh, Nineteen Canuck went on hunger strike. Oh, is, is this just Northern like Ireland? Ireland like, just, we... Oh God! Uh, they boycotted schools and set up their own, um, and they also did really really well in the 1985 election. The Caldosh, for their part, went on a bit of a bombing spree. They bombed the land reform office and then bombed it again when they set up elsewhere. Uh, bomb, bombs all over the place. Just bomb the F out of everything. Uh, far too many, frankly, to mention. A 56-person long hit list of Canucks was circulated with the following advice attached to it. Take action against people. The, the, the tone of this is like it's, you know, uh, in, enjoy our saltwater spa. Uh, Take action against people, which can range from a beating to the full treatment, i.e. murder. Ideally, to get the full impact of the fear of the unknown, make the body disappear without a trace and feed it to the sharks. Oh my god. Yeah. It's really awful. In the face of this, the FLNKS tried to be respectful and responsible, but it kind of didn't matter because uh, Mitterrand was gone. We're back with Chirac. So back with the right wing, uh, which empowers the right in New Caledonia, and Chirac scuttled their newly won regional powers. Mm. You know, whatever they got from the election was basically squashed by Chirac. In 1987, there were 6,000 French troops there, one for every 24 civilians. Wow. All the stuff was happening that you would expect if you put a load of troops in a civilian population. The UN voted by a majority of 89 uh, nations to recognize the New Caledonian right to independence. In 1987, the FLNKS boycotted an independence referendum, which led to an often quoted 98.3% vote to remain yeah. French. With like a, about a 30% turnout or something. Yeah, something like total garbage. Um, yeah. I, I think only... And they, they they were kind of protesting the, the fact that pretty much anyone could vote did have like people who'd just gotten off Absolutely. the boat who were french uh, could vo- vote voting and... rights were were effed but also they were um complaining against the format hmm. of the referendum they were compl- they, they didn't agree with the questions that were being asked like the chibao referred to it as a rubbish referendum um and here here's my favorite quote from him and it's really it's just amazing um one must not forget the canucks are here they will always be here and they will give the French merge until independence. On the morning after the vote, many French will drink champagne, and the next day we'll still be here to say merge. So, yeah. Chibao, noted defiance. Hmm. February 1988. 100 Canucks injured 10 gendarmes and captured another 15. Violence is ramping up massively. And in April 1988, we have the Uveya siege. Mm-hmm. Uh, the details of this are quite messy. I, I do have some, but frank, frankly, there was no journalist there, and a lot of the people who were there didn't didn't make it out, and most of the ones that made it out weren't really willing to talk about it. Um, Canucks 
killed four gendarmes and injured five while taking 27 as hostages. Axes, machetes, and some sporting guns were used. Uh, they brought these captives to a three-tiered cave in the hills in Ubea. 300 gendarmes were flown in, and the hostage takers said they would kill the hostages if they didn't get what they wanted, which in this case was a mediator to be flown in to have a proper referendum under UN supervision. Oh, that seems like a, very, a reasonable demand. It's reasonable enough. Um, they released 11 hostages and another who became ill. The head of France's elite anti-terrorism squad was sent in and got captured along with five oh, of his men. Oh no. The head of the besieged group was portrayed by the French as a, and I quote, a Libyan-trained religious zealot. Wh- he which, was actually a bookish seminarian. Which religion? Uh, Catholic, I believe. He, he was a seminarian. It's very so. rare you get Catholic zealots nowadays. So. I, think he was, I think he was a seminarian on another island, maybe Tahiti okay. or something like that, and he, he'd come back. Anyway, it was near the French election, so uh, this led to Jean-Marie Le Pen from the National Front, calling for the extermination of the Canucks. Yay. He was always moderate in his views. Uh, That's it. Uh, Chirac, under massive pressure, uh, he was worried about you know looking weak right, three yeah. days before the election. Uh, he gave the order, killed the hostage takers, which led to 19 dead and only two French lost in return. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth going a little further into this. The real issue here is the nature of these killings. Um, at least 17 were summary executions, according to reports that came out afterwards. Even some of the soldiers said that, you know, pretty awful stuff. So it wasn't like they stormed the Um, cave and there was bullets everywhere. It was very much, we have the guy captured and we're going to shoot him in the head. It was, it was both, I believe. Yeah. But you can sort of justify SWAT team related crossfire killings in a way that you can't, you know, if you have someone captured, you're meant to give them due process in a civilized society. A hated minister of overseas territories, Bernard Pons, who said cynically, sometimes some deaths are necessary to uphold order and morality. Ooh. So this brings us to kind of the end of this period, mm. end with an asterisk. And this led to the Matignon Accords. Uh, despite the decisive action by Chirac on the eve of the election, he lost it to Mitterrand. So the socialists are back in and they sent in a, a negotiator called Christian Blanc to find a solution to quickly calm things, because things were really spiraling out, of con- spiraling out of control and eve of civil war, frankly, at this point. Uh, it gave amnesties for all involved at Uvea. Uh, it had some provisions for economic support for the Kanak and pushed out a decision on independence for 10 years at least. These were ratified by a referendum in New Caledonia and were followed by the Numea Accords 10 years later. Yeah, so the, 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 the Accords guaranteed that there would be a referendum in 10 years so that was kind of a mm. way to calm everything yep. down kind of go we will have a proper referendum but we're going to have time to make it proper and yeah. to develop there was agreements to sort of develop the economy and to develop the Kanak participation in administering New Caledonia and so on before a referendum which is not a terrible idea I suppose no I mean given the place was you know, it was falling apart. Basically, at that time. run by metropolitan whites who would come over to be civil servants and then leave again. But but also the very fact that the you know the the UC or the mm. FLNKS at this point were themselves becoming very fractured. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, they were on the on the brink of chaos. And um, uh, De Fleur, I believe, on on the right, and Chibao on the left, well, on, on the Canac side. Both traveled to Paris and met in the Matignon Hotel, and that's where the accords were, were done. And, it, you know, we were discussing with this because he, you asked me, like, so do you have the Matignon Accords? I was like, eh, 
I'm not sure. I don't think I do, actually. And the, the truth is that the book I read was written in, in 1989, mm. at the time of this. And there had already been, you know, lots of attempts at, you know, suing for peace and, and so on. And it had never really come to fruition. And I, I don't think at the time this was seen as, you know, th- this will be it. This will fix it. But it, it kind, of, kind did. of did, but with one extra element, which I haven't mentioned, which is that on the one year anniversary anniversary of the Uvea massacre, there was the assassination of Jean-Marie Chibao uh, and uh, his deputy, Yewene Yewene. Um, the killers were from their own side and shouted, Vive l'independence, as they did it. Yeah. So, so something I read yesterday, actually, which was an interesting idea, was that this, I mean, there had been a lot of martyrs at this point, Machoro and de Klerk and so on. Um, but Chibao was a martyr that the French got behind. Sure. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. and they wanted to kind of, you know, look, you've made this sacrifice. It couldn't be blamed on them because it was, uh, you know, it, it was actually somebody from the FLNKS who did it. And people who were uh, opposed to the Matinon Accords, they wanted independence now through violence. Well, the, exactly. They, they, they felt uh, abandoned by their own leaders. Sold out. And, and with the death of Machoro earlier, they didn't really have, you know, Chibao was, you know, he was a negotiator. He was a diplomat. Not really the kind of person to be leading angry young men. Mm. And with the death of Machoro, these kind of elements got out of control and killed their own their own main guy. But something that actually bears this out a little bit is that if only a few years later, they created the um, Jean-Marie Chibao uh, Center yep. for Kanak Culture, uh, which was designed by Renzo Piano and is this, you know, very fancy building. Um, and I assume the French paid for that. And that I think that goes to the idea of building the myth. Chibao gave himself for this cause. Don't, you know, spoil the memory of Chibao yep. by... Yep messing up this opportunity for peace essentially that sounds fair um, and I, yeah I think from the French perspective he was a vessel to pour gravitas and meaning into because he was he wanted diplomacy rather than violence or he was willing to agree to diplomacy exactly and and he was Kanak and he was you know a great leader yeah. and he, he had he had and I think a chief to, as well peace of his tribe naturally I would say he probably was yeah. Um, so yeah that, that, that brings us to the end of this absolutely Bonkers, but super formative period yeah. for uh, uh, New Caledonia and Nouveau Caledonia. And so we, we, we can very quickly hop forward a decade to the end of that Matinon Accord period. Um, yep. The referendum was supposed to happen in 1998, but it was very clear that it couldn't be won. The, the demographics were wrong. The, the Kanak population was still only 40-something percent. Uh, things weren't ready. And so... Everyone came back to the table um, to avoid the referendum. Both right. France and the local government were were didn't see the the point of holding it at that point, and so yeah. they signed the Numea Accord in nineteen ninety eight, which um, was a much more balanced um, and well planned out approach to independence. So the yeah. idea here was that it would be delayed for twenty years. Uh, so if you're good at doing maths, you'll notice that 2018 is uh, 20 years, 20 years after 1998. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the idea was that they would gradually transfer competencies to an increasingly autonomous New Caledonian political structures over the course of four terms of the, the Assembly or the Congress, four or five-year terms, and in the final term, so somewhere between 2013 and 2018, 
they would hold this referendum on the final transfer of the sovereign rights of um, international relations, defence, currency, justice and higher education. So these things that are that France is keeping, they'll only be transferred with full independence. And they've held out right until the very end of that period then. Well, the agreement take... was that these would be held out. Yeah. This was a, an agreement signed and then approved by a referendum by 72% of people. So hmm. the island's on board with this plan. Um, and I quite like it that there's there's a, the overview at the start of the Accords is is, um, is really quite balanced. It sort of describes the history of the islands and, you know, how when James Cook came, he thought he was whatever but the islands were not empty and we did at times oversee overlook our responsibilities and all this there's a line yeah the time has come to recognize the shadows of the colonial period even if it was not devoid of light and also decolonization is the way to rebuild a lasting social bond between the communities living in new caledonia today by enabling the Kanak people to establish new relations with france reflecting the realities of our time so as the Accords go, it's been used as a kind of a model in Papua New Guinea as well, trying to manage movements towards independence for different regions. Mm. And France had to change its constitution to give a special status to New Caledonian citizens, which is distinct from their French citizenship. They have this additional kind of citizenship, okay. which means only mm. they will be able to vote in the referendum, not any French citizen. Right. Um, and when, well, if at this stage, independence happened, that would be what converts into a new nationality. Right. So it's yeah. a separate status. Uh, and an- another part of the deal was that all transfers of administrative powers to, to New Caledonia will be irreversible. Right. So in, with French Polynesia, there's been powers transferred and taken back and transferred and taken back. So this is a different model where if, you know, when they got the power to manage primary education... That's never yeah. going back to Paris, ever. Yeah. Okay, which is kind of reassuring to to independentists. And there's also plans for if the referendum fails to have one every two years for a period of time until uh, they get the right answer. I suppose. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, Macron, uh, Emmanuel Macron, mm-hmm. the French president of today, he he visited, uh, I believe, the site of the Uyabaya massacre. Yeah, on the twentieth uh, anniversary. Exactly. He well. 30th anniversary, you're right. Uh, that was in May, May 2018, he visited. And um, th- there's actually a quote here from, from him, from, from this Al Jazeera news report, which might be interesting. We are at six months from the referendum. And I just wanted to, first of all, revert to sometimes a very difficult past we had, and especially here in Uvea, an island where 30 years ago we had a, a, very, a very tough attack with a lot of victims, so it's very important to reconcile everybody, which is a precondition of a fair referendum. Second, to be sure that uh, this referendum will be organized in a perfect way, which would be the case under the control of the United Nations. But third, I want to convey as well the ambition of France in the region. Basically, he's kind of concerned about China's hegemony in the region. Okay, that, that's an interesting point, because uh, I noticed this reading about the 70s and 80s, that one of the stock lines from the right wing mm-hmm. was that, well, they're just some Russian-controlled, Libyan-trained friggin' maniac. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, readings, just some of the news coverage about the referendum, uh, it's China is the country that's oh, meant yeah. to scare people into... But to be fair, China are um, exerting a lot of influence on the smaller independent 
Oh, they definitely the are. Yeah, were, yeah. You know? So <laughs> it's like, I, I'm not it's saying not, they're not any untrue. worse than France. Just um, obviously, if you're European, you have an interest in Europe having some influence in this important geopolitical sphere. Yeah. And if you're Chinese, you have an interest in China doing so. So uh, it's definitely a concern Paris is correct to have. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. All right. So modern day, I guess. We're, 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 we're running of, very we're long. But um, yeah, modern day. Um, I just have an interesting stat here that the demographics uh, from 1960 to 2000, uh, the percentage of the Kanak population has gone from 47% to 40%. Uh, although it's it's almost so doubled. For independence, huh? um, yeah, but the uh, one interesting thing is that the European population has, um, as a percentage, has has shrank right. from forty percent really? to less than thirty percent. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I assume there's there's other other Polynesians, Polynesians. and um, and uh, Melanesians and um, possibly even other Europeans. I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure, but yeah, um, mm. yeah. It's it's definitely more of a of a you know more of a melting Mix. pot now than it used to be i think yeah yeah which is is a disadvantage to kanak independence aspirations yeah because if they can't get the 50 percent, then they'll never win a vote yeah but i think they are now the largest uh of the population groups on the i could be wrong about that but they've I always been the largest, largest single population yeah. group yeah yeah but never not since the the 50, 40s or 50s have they been the largest proportion the majority yeah 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 uh, and i've read kind of due to that the expectation for the referendum is that it may not they might might not vote for independence no opinion polls are very much pointing towards there's a solid um 50 something percent against independence okay uh in the couple of opinion polls that have been run support for independence is kind of in the 20s and there's a, a large undecided block as well so okay Unless all the undecideds and some of the pro-Remain people swing in the next few months, I think oh, uh, it's very unlikely that independence will come this time. New Caledexit? Uh, <laughs> no. And interestingly, after Brexit, um, there'll be France will be the only European power with any territory in the region. Really? No Spain or Portugal? Apparently not. Wow. Uh, and just one other interesting thing to note on, on kind of movements towards independence, they still haven't picked the flag. So as of 2010... I would have thought it'd be the, the, the Kanak flag, mm. no? If you were a Kaldosh, would you like that flag to be your flag? I guess not, but it, I mean, considering of it's... The, of the yeah. racially segregated uh, socialist party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... But it just I've I've seen it so much in the in the research that it almost feels like it's already the flag, you know? It, it, and it must be... It must yeah. have such a strong presence on the island that... Yeah. Like, it, it feels like the, you know, the obvious choice, but... As of 2010... The compromise is to fly both the French tricolor and the Kanak flag sure, yeah. simultaneously on the same flagpole. Their flag is two flags. And this was actually symbolically first done by the French prime minister. Did I read something about they, they, they have like a special apparatus where they both fly side by side rather than one above the other? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a weird little hat on the flagpole. But like yeah. Two flags set up. So there's not, it's not That's one weird. on the top and the other on the bottom necessarily. It's they fly at the no, same no, height. No, no. Which is it's interesting. Height. Yeah, it makes it quite awkward though because that's yeah. not really how flagpoles work. Does one not block out the other? Mm. Uh, no, they're separate. It's like um, like uh, like well, an Australian football goalpost. Yeah, 
You know, you've got a single uh, pole that okay. splits forks. It does fork. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that's, right, how, right. that's how you would how you put it. Yeah. And yeah, so it was symbolically first raised by um, French Prime Minister Edouard Philippe as part of a ceremony to kind of recognise this dual identity. But obviously, upon independence, they would need to have a name and a flag and an anthem for this mm. new country, whatever it would be called. Yes. Would it even be called New Caledonia? Who knows? Ah, true. Oh, and another thing about demographics we should mention is religion. Uh, the country is predominantly Christian, 60% Catholic and 30% Protestant, with 10% of various other religions. John, do I remember you telling me you saw some interesting religious sites when you were there? Absolutely, absolutely. Would you like to talk about um, that? Well, we were on a tour of the Isle of Pines. Um, we went to two religious sites. So both were Christian because of obviously the heavy influence of mm. missionaries. But they were also at the same time really heavily influenced by Kanak culture and customs. So the first place we went to see was a church. It looked like quite a typical church from the outside. But inside, up at the altar, the furniture was all inlaid with Kanak designs Mm. and symbols. I mean, probably the most striking Mm. was this table whose legs, as in the table legs were carved into actual human legs. Now, hang on. Um, they were, they, they wow. were wood carved in the, in the shape of human legs or they were actual <laughs> yes, human legs allow- carved into tables? <laughs> Either is pretty exciting. Allow, <laughs> allow me to clarify. These, these were, these were okay. wooden table legs, but they were carved to look like two human legs supporting this table. And it was really kind and of... And that is not something that you would ever see in like a, a traditional, I suppose, Western church. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay, interesting. There was, there was also a totem just next to it, and that had human faces covering it on all sides, but each one was merging oh into the God. next. You kind of have to have a look at the picture to uh, to know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, we'll add those pictures in the, in the show, show notes, notes if that's if that's okay with you, yeah. That'd Absolutely, be, that'd yeah. Be, that'd be great. And then the other place that we went to see um, after the church was a shrine to the Virgin Mary, and it was right right next to the mm-hmm. sea. So it was this very powerful thing of a st- of a statue with a backdrop of of the sea right behind it. But the shrine to the Virgin Mary was surrounded by completely surrounded on all sides by stone carvings of traditional Kanak symbology, which included depictions of characters from their pre-Christian religious traditions. Um, carvings of ancestors because there's a lot of um, ancestor worship in their um, belief systems so I think just that blend of Christian and non-Christian which was so obviously seen in the fact that you've got a Christian statue surrounded by non-Christian mm. um, images was really really fascinating to see cool cool yeah nice one Okay, uh, anything else for modern day? I mean, um, oh, the Kagu I was going to talk about, which I mentioned at the top of the episode, is a, yep. is a especially significant uh, bird to New Caledonia. It's a long-legged bluish-gray bird that is completely endemic to New Caledonia, so it doesn't live anywhere else in the world, and is the only surviving member of its genus. So, like, there's, you know, every oh. other every other bird in this, in this category is extinct. <clears throat> um... 22 inches long or uh, 55 centimeters it has uh bright red legs it's a re- it's a quite an interesting looking bird and it has um these things are called nasal corns which as far as i can tell look kind of like nostrils which you don't typically get on a bird right uh and they're a unique feature that are not shared with any other living bird today hmm. and it's almost completely flightless like I, I i get the impression it's it can kind of flap its wings and sort of like 
break a fall you know if Typical it needs to Oceania. so it spends most of its time on or near the ground uh hunts insects and that sort of thing and it builds an, its nest on the forest floor and both of its parents uh incubate a single egg so it hasn't made itself like you know it, it hasn't made life easy for itself it hasn't made itself hard to 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 yeah. hunt yeah yeah uh, proven very vulnerable to introduce predators and is threatened currently threatened with extinction um, it's at endangered status when I checked the other day um, yeah. but they're they are undertaking efforts to uh, you know to increase the population of kagus on the on the island but and it it appears on some some flag suggestions yeah, it's on like the, the, Olymp- the Olympic flag sure and it's kagu. it's it, it kind of reminds me of the kiwi in New Zealand where they, they just put mm. it on stuff they're like here's a cool bird that we have <laughs> and it's um, ours and it's our bird so yeah and something i like to mention is is there's a, a wonderful p- piece of cuisine that I, I like the sound of i found a a food blog called not quite nigella which okay a description okay. of how to make this um it's called a bunya and uh it's basically it's basically a stew you know with some root vegetables you know yams or taro Sweet potatoes, uh, you know, all wrapped in, but with with seafood and maybe a quail if you're so inclined. A quail, wow. wrapped in banana leaves, surf and turf. A, Interesting. Yeah, so you make you make a sort of a basket of banana leaves, tie it up into a bundle, which is what bunya means, right? In one of the local languages, and then you bury it in the ground with hot rocks yep. to steam it, ah, cool. and it looks absolutely delicious. Everything's just like casseroled into this nice. wonderful goodness. Uh, so I kind of, kind of want one now. I'm a bit hungry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we have been recording for quite a while. Um, another thing on the on so the ecology. Uh, obviously, we mentioned at the top of the episode that it's the the coral reefs are like a UNESCO mm-hmm. protected uh, world heritage site since I think 2008 or something like that. Yeah. Um, and there are no native mammals on the islands apart from bats. So like it's hmm. gross. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, they have several types of different bats, but apart from that, there are no kind of cool and interesting mammals at all. It's just insects and and few reptiles and things like that. But it does have incredible uh, sea life, as uh, I think a lot of kind of coral reefs do. Like it's it's it's, uh, yeah. it's known mm-hmm. for diving and scuba diving and um, that sort of thing. Just one more thing uh, for me, just economy wise, um, just looking at their kind of GDP per capita and where they, they fit in, they, 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 it's actually relatively easy to get there. And despite the French calling it the rock, um, their main airport in Noumea, they have like five, ten airports across the, all the islands. Uh, Noumea <laughs> itself has direct flights to Japan, Australia. It's quite well connected, actually. Uh, and John obviously got there by cruise ship. So that's, I guess, that's yeah. another option. Popular honeymoon destination for it, yeah, it, it, And uh, Japanese as well, apparently. Um, but in terms of their economy per person, uh, they're actually almost exactly on par with Mongolia, but also Nauru, uh, Georgia, mm. and Namibia. So not an, an economic superpower by any means, but not necessarily massively impoverished, although it might be skewed by the mining activity. What you're saying is we need to do an episode on Mongolia. Well, I can tell you from the others in the list, <laughs> Ecuador, Bosnia, Cuba's in there. Jeez, yeah. They're all in 12,000. Uh, you know, plus, okay. plus or minus so, few so, so, so that's our kind of that's our territory that's that's our our bailiwick um, what else do we have we had another list that was like um 
places that have been di- indicted for money laundering or <laughs> yes. something. We were oh, like, yes. Yeah, a yeah, lot yeah, of we, our we, episodes we, appeared we on we there too. We heavily filled that. The IMF, yeah. I think, we're doing it. Or, um, yeah, and yeah. one other thing to mention is sandalwood. Um, the two things, if you kind of look up uh, New, uh, New Caledonia in the 1800s, blackbirding and sandalwood, the two things that are mentioned. Blackbirding we've already covered, but sandalwood uh, used to grow, uh, still kind of does, uh, in, endemic to the island. Um, but a lot of it was uh, taken and exported to China for incense. But there's a specific kind of sandalwood that grows in New Caledonia, um, which is specific to there. It has been reduced by a lot. There's only a very small amount now growing in the wild, um, so uh, that's no longer a thing. But uh, sandalwood is a thing that New Caledonia was was noted for for a long time. Okay, yeah, I, I mean, just when you when you touched on the GDP there, I had another note here that... Um... Unfortunately, the the distribution of wealth between the different ethnic groups is uh, is very unequal. Even though right. New Caledonia, it's in total, so I assume that the Kanaks are really rich and the whites. Yeah, are poor, exactly. But... Yeah, that's it. I mean, GDP per capita is one of the highest in all of the South Pacific Islands, but you know, yeah. it's um, but most of that is the Rothschilds having. Nickel. Yes, Melanesian households earn on average only about one quarter of the income of the typical European household. So it's it's still you know a very unequal society, unfortunately, but. Um, you know mm. they're 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 improving. It sounds like, right? I I, I know yeah. I've said it a few times, but I just can't shake the familiarity of this kind of conflict yeah. to 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 Northern Ireland. Like obviously, if you're from a place with a different sort of colonial history, you might feel resonance with that instead. But there's so many points along indigenous people looking for independence that feel familiar. Yeah, to it's, Irish history. It's an unfortunately it's very familiar story. Um, yeah and one that we've heard before in previous episodes as well um okay that's that's our episode for today uh you can find more information if you if you haven't had enough you can find more information in our show notes we we put up links and and uh videos and pictures and of course we'll include john's pictures in in there as well and just pictures of john yeah sure john on the beach john relaxing with a a, a margarita (laughs) john lounging in the bath we live in hope (laughs) We also have a few thank yous to make in this episode. First of all, thanks very much to Sarah O'Farrell for her help with translation and to James O'Malan for helping us with voiceover work, as well as thank you to Cam B, one of our new Patreon backers. Remember, if you'd like to help us out on Patreon, uh, get extra bonus content, access to our show notes, or even have a say in where we visit next, be sure to visit us at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. You can also find us on social media. Uh, We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under 80 Days Podcast. You can email us at 80daypodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website, 80daypodcast.com. You can find more episodes of the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you'd like to help out the show, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. That would really help out our visibility, helps more people to find out about the show, and would just be, you know, we'd be really happy to hear from you. So, Joe, where can people find more of your work on the internet? They can find uh, some intermittent blog posts from me on timetoburn.com, where burn is spelled B-Y-R-N-E. And Mark? Uh, I also have a blog, but I don't update it ever, so it's probably no point in giving you that. Uh, just, you know, Twitter. Uh, Mark, MarkBoy86 at Twitter. Twitter.com. Twitter. And John, what about you? How, how can people find out more about your, your travels all over the world? Uh, well, I've put some of my travel pictures from New Caledonia and from other places on Ew. Instagram, so you can find me at john.killeen90. Ah, nice. I wonder what age John is. <laughs> oh, Jesus. You'll never know. You can find me <laughs> at lukejkelly.com or at the Luke J. Kelly on Twitter. 
John, thanks very much for joining us on this episode. We really appreciate your insight. You know, it's, uh, it's been great. So, Thank yeah, you. hopefully we'll have you on again in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Au revoir. Oh, my God.